Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, Owen Kate, likes you to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik. I'm joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going? It's going all right. How are you tonight? Uh, well, I'm incredibly super happy because we have to talk about the big news this week, which I, many things happened this week. I was about to say, you're, you're going to need to be way more specific. But, are you talking about Gilmore Girl casting, which was everywhere? I don't I care. Mean... <laughs> I care about Star Trek ca- casting because they finally gave Brian Fuller Star Trek. This is a thing that I have been wanting to happen since I found out that he w- wanted to do a Star Trek show years ago for years mm-hmm. i've been saying just give oh my god it's brian fuller just give him star trek he would do so good uh and that's happening listeners and i'm in like little nerd nirvana i'm in nerdvana about it i'm very excited right and now you're just like oh i was never gonna pay for cbs all access and now please take my seven dollars a month <laughs> exactly no, there was a zero percent chance i was gonna pay for the cbs thingy so that i could watch star trek as much as i do enjoy star trek and i'm a fan of the the series and many many things about it but um but now yeah they need to they can't take my money fast enough. i really i really really don't care about any of the gilmore girls casting because it just keeps like trickling out and everything i'm like and it's really showing me how how little i am invested in it despite really uh, enjoying the series it, it, like if they're doing a bunheads thing i would be there like that i would be like all over it but for gilmore girls i'm kind of like yeah i'm sure it'll be really good i'll watch it i'll really like it but uh how about we instead lock down angela bassett because you know that's the thing that <laughs> brian fuller has been saying for years that he thinks there should be captain angela bassett and then apparently also second in command rosario dawson i think is right was. yes that was it i'm yeah. like oh i'm so there for that people are like hugh dancy or mass mickelson and i'm like yeah they're amazing i'm sorry angela bassett like <laughs> that's been put in my brain so you did, but so you're not taking my suggestion that Mads Mikkelsen needs to play an alien with antlers. He can be that, yeah. He's just not going to be the captain. And Hugh can be the dis- disturbed captain, former captain. You yeah. know, maybe called in by the Federation. Yeah. How about how about he's the how about he's the barkeep, the former captain barkeep who's dealing with some stuff. You know, how about that? Like we put him in the Guinan role. <laughs> I actually really like that idea. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, See? Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but but what about you? What has stood out to you this week, Noel? The Brian Fuller casting was um, really interesting news. And I think it's just, I think it for me, it just really demonstrates that so much of CBS using Star Trek to really get people to buy into all access is just like what happened with UPN using Voyager to get people excited about UPN. Mm-hmm. And but now they're just like Brian Fuller, and it's just like, oh, you sons of bitches! <laughs> yeah, you crafty crap. Moonves always wins, <laughs> and he does. Moonves always wins. I mean, he's taking over um, National Amusements from Redstone, so he always wins. Yeah. yeah. Well, hearing that Fuller's bit had been talking about wanting to do something more optimistic again, you know, after Hannibal and getting kind of getting back to pushing Daisy's lens, I'm like. That is what Star Trek is supposed to be. So, no, well, and also nothing says optimistic like an adaptation of a Neil Gaiman novel. Wait, <laughs> hang on. <laughs> There's that. Yeah, uh, I'm sure American Gods will be interesting as well. Yeah, the casting no. from that has gone out uh, as well. And a little some, bit of it. Yeah. There's some good. There's some people that we like. 
I yeah, know. nobody get attached to Lincoln on the hundred. Apparently, I know. I saw that. I was like, oh, I have a feeling what's gonna happen there. Uh, yeah. But but the, yeah, that was the main thing. I'm still buzzing about it days later. So that yeah. was the highlight of, of my week in TV. But another big highlight of my week this week was getting to talk to Brad Breek, who's the composer for Gravity Falls. And so this week, instead of a DVD shelf, um, you'll get to hear listeners get to hear my interview with with him, and that's going to be at the end of the podcast. Uh, the series finale for Gravity falls is debuting um this, this coming monday as we record so in just a few days on the 15th um so if you're a fan of the series check it out if you are just interested in composition check it out but i know we'll have thoughts on the gravity falls finale next week is that something yes. you're excited about i am very excited i actually thought it was this week when my dvr recorded something for gravity falls but it was a hey let's look back and catch up type of special and i just went oh you guys lost you guys lost recapped me sons of bitches <laughs> Uh, but we've got a very full week in TV and then a nice, uh, lengthy yeah. interview. So we should probably get started because we should. The, there's so much like you caught up on stuff. I caught up on stuff. So much to yeah. talk about this week. And you caught up on way more stuff than I did. So let's yeah. get going. Let's, let's do this. We'll be right back after this, <laughs> listeners. Well, Rebecca, you've done it now. Yeah, you guys know this one. Karma's come to tap you on the shoulder. All that lying that's been festering, plus breaking and entering, is coming now to crush you like a boulder. You ruined everything, you stupid bitch. You ruined everything, you stupid, stupid bitch. That was You Stupid Bitch from this week's episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I'm kind of laughing while I say it, but that is not the reaction I was having watching it. Uh, I was laughing, but then I was also crying in acknowledgement that, I mean, I've done that. Yeah. So Who hasn't, really? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, anyways, we'll get to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, but we're going to kick things off here with like a mini uh, Kate's Roundup of Children's Hospital, Man Seeking Woman, and and a Superstore. Uh, then we'll talk some Grinder, and then go to the uh, premiere of Full Frontal with Samantha B. Venture Brothers. Uh, Maybe No Go is the episode from this week, but uh, we also will talk a little bit about Hostel Makeover from last week. Brooklyn Nine Nine had the Nine Eight, and then we'll get to Crazy Ex Girlfriend. That text was not meant for Josh. The first like non happy exclamation point. <laughs> uh, it needed to be panicked. It did. It did. And then uh, we'll get to, uh, of course, Jane the Virgin, Chapter 33. But first up, I wanted to catch up on a few shows that um, that, that you, you are not able to watch or do not uh, do not have particular thoughts on, uh, but that I enjoy and have been slacking on. So first up is Children's Hospital, which had one million saved, size 10-year Dr. Beth. Um, still really enjoying Children's Hospital. I liked the way they brought back um, John Hamm. For uh, for one million saved and <laughs> talked about the vowels of children's, uh, it's very silly, but it's, it's very fun. Um, size tenure was was entertaining, um, and it gave some nice time to Henry Winkler, who I had been missing um, in the previous episodes. But uh, I think I think I'm bigger on one million saved. Um, and anytime Doctor Beth, anytime they they let uh, Beth take center stage, I'm only gonna like 
that episode as well. So Children's Hospital still very much doing its its thing and uh, and just on point. I, I, I was thinking of Children's Hospital a lot more this week because a lot of the voice cast or several of the prominent voice cast from the HBO show Animals, which I'm not very fond of, uh, are are on um, Children's or, or the regulars on, on Children's Hospital or some of them at least. And uh, and so it was just, I was just kind of watching Animals being like, I would rather be watching almost any of these people on children's right now doing very similar dialogue. Uh, I feel like it would be more interesting in that way. But anyways, that's the conversation for when I have more to say about animals, which will hopefully happen in the next couple of weeks. Instead, I want to move on to Superstore, which I caught up with. Um, I watched like eight or nine episodes this week of that um, while I was like making dinner and such and really enjoyed myself. I actually think it got, I, I was solid, but not particularly intrigued by, um, or I thought the pilot was solid, but I wasn't particularly intrigued. And even by like second, third episode of the season, I thought I'd gotten a lot more cohesive. They they've really dialed back the the will they won't they of the central couple by you know giving her a kid and a husband, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that surprise expression from from null listeners, um, and also doing some other things too to, to make it more of a workplace comedy that I, I think I think that works a lot better than just really straining for yet another romance driven show i mean there's still that element there there's still you know certain other elements um that fit more with a traditional kind of rom-com feel but uh i I think going back to just more a really strong ensemble cast having fun with wacky hijinks inside of walmart uh, i mean sorry cloud nine uh (laughs) it's a strong premise and they're they're doing they're doing a good job so i wound up really enjoying my time which is it just went down super easy which is why which is good i watched like nine of them or eight or nine of them this week um so yeah props to them also i had to mention in like their second or third episode um because of course former co-host simon howell had been telling me that he was enjoying uh superstorm which is a part of what prompted me to catch up with it and like their second or third episode i was like oh i see why simon likes this because they start an episode with a scene where i think mark mckinney says abortion like eight or ten times (laughs) referencing the pregnant teenager um how about how she didn't go to planet parenthood um, because she couldn't get a ride, which leads to a whole conversation of who is willing, who will give rides to to the abortion clinic, etc. Uh, I'm raising my hand, even oh, though I, yeah, I, even though I don't have a driver's license, I will totally give someone a ride to an abortion clinic. Yeah, I just because that's the kind of the the a word is so danced around on so many shows. So just yeah. to see a show go, yeah, we're not even about any of this stuff, but we are not afraid of talking about abortion as like a legitimate choice that someone can make in a reality yeah. of our world. Uh, so even just, you know, something as small as that was was really refreshing and nice to see, uh, you know, that point of view. So spoiler alert, listeners, I'm a very liberally minded person when it comes to politics. This affects my, my lens and my view of things. And this was one of the things that made me more interested in Superstore. And the last one I'm going to mention up here before I throw it over to you, because I'm getting parched here, uh, is Man Seeking Woman, uh, Honey, and I danced around this last week, but I just, I love that they brought Fred Armisen on to play Jesus, who is the current boyfriend of our protagonist's uh, crush, and I just thought it was, a, first of all, Armisen nailed it, uh, second of all, the episode also let Mark McKinney, also super fun on Superstore, uh, get a, a delightful backstory where he went into hibernation to wait for uh, Josh's mom to be available because of course she got married to josh's dad and 
then that broke up. So he went, it became a bear, basically. It was just an extended sequence that was kind of uh, hilarious and wonderful. Always glad to see him get more to do. But going back to Armisen is Jesus. I just thought it was a really fun counterpoint to the pilot where we see Josh's ex is dating Hitler. Uh, so it just kind of shows the progression and how he's viewing these different people and which is worse if your ex is now dating Hitler instead of you or if you're trying to steal away the girl of your dreams from Jesus. I mean. Yeah, there's that's terrible on both sides. There's. Yeah. 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 Super. Because I mean, if you if if you dated someone who's willing to date Hitler, that just makes you question your taste. You'd think, yeah. Yeah, and then, I mean, if you don't want to take someone from Jesus. Yeah, because Jesus is super cool, you know? Right? He's, like, doing his best to, to help out as they play celebrity and uh, doing... <laughs> yeah, it's it just... It, he may have food allergies, but he'll, like, cover for you when you intentionally poison him because he's awesome that way. Right. Uh, you know, he's Jesus. But yeah, I, he turns the other cheek, man. Yeah, yeah, it's his thing. Uh, but it that was... So that was super fun, and uh, while I... I'm no longer reviewing it week to week. I still am very much enjoying Man Seeking Woman. But I need to get something to drink here because I've been talking too much. I want to know what you thought. Because uh, I also caught up with the grinder and watched all the episodes. Uh, I want to know what you thought of this week's episode, the retooling of Dean Sanderson. Um, I enjoyed the retooling of Dan Sanderson, but I think I'm just like firmly in this show's camp at this point. So short of them doing something really disastrous, I'm probably always going to like episodes of the grinder um in no small part because i think the show's just again still leaning in really heavily about being a show about television which is like that's no old catnip if you're a show about television i'm going to like you even just a little bit by default and so this whole thing about needing to ground dean and like retool him a little bit so he's more relatable it's just like Yes! Let's talk about network notes. Let's talk about how Stu is basically network notes personified. And it's just a really fascinating, fun little dynamic. And the more they lean into the meta-ness of engaging in Dean's idea of the world operating like television, the more I think that the grinder behind-the-scenes folks are just convinced they're only going to get one season. And so they're just like, we're just going to keep doing this. We're going to till death this. Not as bad, because I doubt they'll recast the entire show and they make it really obvious. But I think that they're, they're playing with like how television works, and I think Dean's obsession with television and life as television allows that to not feel as obnoxiously meta as it might otherwise feel, because it provides an entry point, because this guy's just clearly obsessed with how he was in television. So, no, I really liked it. I liked how he recreated his office as the office from the show, and just, I mean, all that sort of fun stuff. And my Rudolph was really great in a really low-key cameo as the therapist this week. Um, but no, it was a really, really fun, interesting episode. And I still just love the show's cold opens, where they all sit around, talk about the grinder, and use the grinder to set up the meta stuff that they're going to talk about that week. How did you feel catching up about the grinder, and how did you feel about retooling De Dean Sanderson? Well... I was very fortunate in that, uh, or I should say unfortunate originally. Uh, I watched the first four episodes of the show and then got away from it. <clears throat> so as I was starting my, my you know, my catch-up, I started with episode five. And I think that's probably the best episode they've done. Uh, Which one is that? That's the one with Christina Applegate. 
it's, oh yeah no that episode's great it's really really good and so i was like holy crap how did i not remember that this show's amazing and then the the other ones weren't quite as good for me um but i think what that episode really gets right and which i think only has only sporadically been right in as, as well or at least for me um since then is they they really use mary Liz, elizabeth ellis in that episode and her rapport with fred savage i think is key to my enjoyment of the show okay. i mean i like the show anyways but yeah. the episodes where she gets more to do and feels more like a person and less like a reaction machine yeah uh which is what she is a lot yeah okay. it, it feels very much like like the first season of always sunny where d didn't really get to be funny she was there to react to the guys being wacky um so i like there's was also the episode where we went with her to work and you know dealt with uh how she was d- her assistant, her assistant. yeah and, and that one I liked more of as well. It just, it also allows, it allows us to get, for her to feel more, more realized, but it also lets the, the dynamic between husband and wife feel more balanced and more interesting. It's not just always him complaining about his brother all the time. It lets them right. feel more, more whole, I guess. So I, I've really enjoyed the meta-ness, but for me, it's actually maybe gone a little too far where that okay. it's starting to feel a bit like a one-trick pony. Um to to me and so i think the episodes where they balance that a little bit more uh sure. work a lot better uh and, and they, they can also balance it in different ways it's, it's like i can see it feels like the show is a bit straining because they know they have a lot of really funny people and they're they could do a lot of different really funny things so the begin the episodes that feature mary elizabeth ellis more tend to also not feature natalie morales very much and so then then you get an episode then it's like oh but we're not using natalie morales and so then you get an episode more centered at work which lets her get more to do and some of the other other uh cast members over there get more to do but then the so it's like they have two good shows here but not enough time to really do both at the same time i, I really loved when they had um those two characters meet each other <laughs> yes and they acknowledge the fact that they had never met one another before. And it's just like, this is weird. It is weird. And it was really, really funny. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's, I mean, that is a wonderful problem to have. We yes. have too many talented, very funny people who, as soon as we give them something, are very good. Um, I don't know how they could incorporate, you know, because they need to be able to have the Fred Savage character go home and talk to his wife and her not already know what's happened. So it's not like she can just go work for the firm because right. we need to get his perspective on things and not just have her already know everything. But um, that is, so that's what I'm seeing as an issue with the show for me right now, but sure. I still am very much enjoying it. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've enjoyed the, the way that they've gone with the Oliphant and uh, Morales stuff. Yes. But it's, it's fantastic I, that they've avoided her hooking up with the original grinder, but then inverted it so that she hooked up with the other grinder instead. Yeah, I do still um, have a problem with... I just think it's weird. Like, yes, I know there are lots of relationships that span two decades between the couples, and that doesn't mean that they can't be very committed, loving relationships. Um, I just think it's kind of weird that the 30-year-old is uh, expected to be the love interest of, like, the 50-year-old... And then they, she reacts with, "Ew, I'm not interested in you." And instead, they have her go out with the 48 year old. Like mm-hmm. that to me. I mean, yes, obviously they're all gorgeous, gorgeous people. Don't get me wrong, they're gorgeous people. 
They're in wonderful shape. They do not look their age. None of them. But I still think it's weird. And I get really frustrated by the gender disparity of... Sure. You know, and and I was like, younger, that's the entire dynamic is the fact that it's a 40-year-old woman dating a 26-year-old man. Um, But to not have it get mentioned, like, once, to have them be treated as complete equals and peers, like, even just culturally, there should be touch points that they... Like, if they're going to have that big an age gap, I feel like it should every now and again come up. Um, so, I don't know. Is that just a me, like, pet peeve thing? Do you notice that at all? Oh, I think I just see their dynamic as mostly being, at least for um, Natalie Morales' character, mostly just being about sex. Yeah. I don't think she really likes Elephant very much. <laughs> He's a bit clingy. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just, I don't think that she likes him very much. I think she likes how he looks and... Maybe he likes his personality, but like you said, he's kind of clingy and needy. And she is very much not someone who wants clingy and needy, I think. Yeah. So I think for her, it's mostly just about sex, which is probably why it hasn't bothered me. Okay. Yeah, because we're still like we're seeing them have deep, meaningful relationships. They're just mostly having fun and why not? And they're both really hot. So yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I guess for me, I think it'll depend on how that continues moving forward if it's something that they try to deepen or or not um yeah it would also just be nice if they would like maybe that's part of why i also enjoyed the the christina applegate episode but like them bringing in somebody who is definitively the character same age as the character for roblo to be interested i think was also just a nice refreshing thing because that's not something that happens a lot necessarily on tv um but in general i mean it's it's a really fun show and they i do not doubt what you said that maybe they they just are pretty sure they're only gonna get one season so they're gonna have fun with it uh if that is the case i'll be sad to see it go yeah it's just the fox tuesday comedy block is a garbage fire yeah (laughs) ratings wise no one's watching even when they're really good yeah Oh, well. Um, let's move on to our next show, which is Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. Um, so after all these catch-ups, a pilot. How did you, how'd you feel about this? And uh, how, do you, how do you feel about them it being a once-a-week show, but on a, on a Monday? Um, I've, I didn't know it was a once-a-week show until the Monday of. Hey, I, I totally thought it forgot. was daily. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought they were at least doing four a week. Um, so I was just like, oh, oh, this is nice. I like this. Okay, this is perfect. Because I was just like, oh, I already have a four-week show with the nightly show. I don't really want another one right now. Oh, great. Perfect. Um, but no, I really enjoyed this um, in no small part because I felt like the political humor was really sharp, I thought. Um, and with a perspective, which was important. And I think that's what's going to keep Full Frontal going forward uh, for the next 12 episodes that it has for its first season is that it has a very definitive perspective um, through Samantha Bee and through her writers. And I think that's really, really important. But the other thing is, is just, I knew that their first like pre-taped bit was going to be about Jeb Bush. And I was just like, guys, it's kind of late for you guys to do a Jeb Bush segment. I mean, he's a punching bag at this point. I mean, it's, there's no more comedy to mine dealing with Jeb Bush. And then they did a Warner Herzog-styled mockumentary about Jeb Bush. And I just went, oh my god, you guys found a way to do this that is fantastic and just so painfully perfect. And plus the fact that they were in New Hampshire helped a lot as well because they just really keyed into like uh, 
uh, Herzog's Antarctica documentary for a lot of that. And so it's just, it was really, really funny. I enjoyed it immensely. I like the fact that there's no desk. I like the fact that she's just riffing um, in front of a blue screen and playing clips. And it still really works. It's like kind of, it's like this, Corey compared it to the soup, but for politics. And I kind of like that idea, at least for this first episode. And I'm really excited to see what they do for the next 12. How did you feel about it? Well, exactly what you just said is my biggest issue with it. I don't like that it feels like the soup. I don't like that it's just her standing up next to a very fake-looking blue screen. Um, Mm -hmm. I would like it to feel like it had more weight around it, Um, whether that's through the desk or through something else. um, It just... And maybe these are just my uh, sure. um, assumptions and, and connotations to these things, but uh, it, it made it for me. Uh, it made it feel a little less weighty, a little less, um, a little less considered, which I know is not the case. I know yeah, this is I... not like like she's not spouting off punchlines that occur to her randomly, but um, just having more architecture around her for lack of a better word i think would i would i would like that more where it may but maybe it's just as a matter of not put of it, this is pushing me outside of my comfort zone what i'm used to on the daily show and the nightly show and last week tonight uh so maybe what i can what i, I guess what i'm hoping i'll see is in the next episodes something that uh in the presentation that takes advantage of that and does something that those guys can't do because they're behind a desk. And if that starts to be the case, if I feel like there's a specific reason she's not behind a desk other than to not be behind a desk, um, then maybe that She has said that she doesn't, she didn't want to be behind a desk, that she feels really uncomfortable behind a desk. Mm -hmm. So she wanted to be standing. So that was just her. Okay. yeah. Yeah. But even, even just like something, having a set, like like a like a Chappelle show or you know there there are other ways to do a person yeah. standing and talking, other than just like it, it may I think what it is is to me it makes it feel really cheap because they just slapped a green screen up there. But right, and I see your point about being cheap. But when you say lack of architecture and cheapness and just oh she's just in front of a green screen, I see that they decided to allocate that money into doing field segments. Mm-hmm. So like they 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 have one that's overseas mm-hmm. that they went overseas to do because they're just like well we don't know if we're going to get a second season so we might as well just do this now. So you see cheapness, I see proper allocation of their budget. Yeah, and <laughs> I don't have anything yeah. to say to that. Uh, I don't <laughs> think that you're other than I think that you can make a set that's not super expensive. I think that's the thing that can be done, but I, but it's an excellent point that you make. And, mm-hmm. um, and it also speaks to the perspective and the priorities of the show. Yeah. Um, and, and another thing we haven't mentioned, uh, it's been reported a bunch of other places. So, so I, I assume our listeners already know about this, but uh, I adore their, their, um, the process that they took for hiring writers where they blocked out anything that would tell them, um, gender age, yeah. And ethnicity, um, including putting not taking into account experience, because yeah. <laughs> certain people get more opportunities to gain experience than others do in in Hollywood. So um, that ended up with them having a fifty fifty, I think, man and woman, and roughly, a, yeah, roughly. And isn't it like the it's like thirty percent people of color or something like that? Uh, 
I think that's correct, yeah. Um, and I think that's just really, really admirable. And and even just, and if, if the show wasn't well-written, that wouldn't matter. But it yeah. is. So right. you, this is something you can do, people who hire people for writing jobs, uh, and still have a really funny show, at least based right. on this first episode. And the the executive producer who crafted the show with B has has already said that they're not happy with the results of the blind hiring in that they didn't get as much as they were hoping diversity as they were hoping for through the mm-hmm. process. So if they get a second season, I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of retool a little bit yeah. to make sure that there's a little more diversity within the writer's room. So, but I think the fact that they're hyper aware of that is really good because so much of this show and B's marketing self-marketing of the show has been very much against the fact that, Oh, right. I'm the only woman around here. This is fun. And they didn't even offer me the job at Daily Show. They didn't even have a meeting with me about it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, let's move on, though, to our next show. We'll we'll check back in with with Full Frontal when we have more episodes to comment on. But uh, Venture Brothers came back last week, and we didn't talk about that. And shame on us. I kind of forgot. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, what did you think of these episodes? Um, I say I kind of forgot, but I still, gosh, I miss the Venture Brothers. I think part of it is just absence makes the heart grow fonder. So you're just like, oh, this was off for three years. Oh, this was off for five years. Of course I missed you guys. Come back to me. And so there's plenty of stuff still to love in the Venture Brothers. Every time I'm just like, oh, how can they find new mileage to do? And then they just find it. And they're just like, there's plenty of other stuff through popular culture of superheroes or comic books or through just science fiction paraphernalia that they find things to do that are still just really really funny so the guild of calamitous intent rebuilding itself with a council and rejected supervillains and just all this sort of fun stuff and then the gender politics behind dr uh mrs the monarch dr girlfriend or however we're calling her now and it's just all of this stuff is really great and we still have rusty screwing shit up because that's what Rusty does. But on the whole, also Brock's back with the family. And I'm so, so happy about that. Because <laughs> as much as I, I came to love Sergeant Hatred, it's Brock all the way. Um, so I, I, I really enjoyed both of these episodes. I like their riff on super superheroes who only protect if you pay them as part of an extortion scheme, basically. <laughs> And so, no, I'm really excited to see what they do in New York. Um, and, yeah, I'm just, I'm really excited about this. I'm really excited to have the show back. And I'm, it's always worth the wait. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about this season, as I always am when the Venture Brothers come back. And I never realized that there was just a little hole in my heart that they needed to fill. And then when it's gone, it's going to be there again. And I will be sad. <laughs> Yeah, one of the things they're really good at with Venture Brothers, uh, aside from everything that you just said, which cosign uh-huh. all that, um, is they're really good at knowing when to bring somebody back and when to add something new. Yes. So that they are constantly expanding their world and their universe, um, but bringing, bringing like, these tiny peripheral characters back frequently enough that it does feel like a world. Yeah. That they don't just have characters get invented because fallen archer is a funny pun um <laughs> but they, 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 they are still out there so you know bringing back uh what is it the brown widow what's the fillion character 
who spends so long determining how he should react to the 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 can of soda that he can't dodge it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember his name. Anyways, but you know, bringing back a character like that who's super fun um while also creating so at least I think there were th- were these all recurring people or were some of them new? I felt like some of them were new. Uh quite a few of them were new. Yeah. 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 Uh so it just it really helps the uh the the feel of the world and it lets uh <laughs> it just kind of always keeps me a little bit off off guard as I'm trying to remember the the vast mythology. Right. And I've just given up on that aspect. I gave up on that aspect uh last season mm-hmm. when that break was really long. I was just like I I I, I I'm not even going to bother to try because I can't. I just can't. Well, I, yeah, I watched them all pretty recently for the last Mickey Watchathon. Um, mm-hmm. I caught up with much of the. I had seen the more recent seasons, but not anything before. And I still much preferred this version, the more recent version of the show. And I feel like I feel like the uh, the writers have matured and gotten more creative as they've. It, the show has matured too. Um, it's not just the single gag every week. Um, and, and so it, this continues in that vein for the most part. I, I was really on board with, with both episodes. And yeah, it's just, it's so fun. It's just ridiculous and fun and very glad to have it back. Like you say, it's always worth the wait with Venture Brothers. It is. And yeah. I think the other thing that they've always done really well is their deconstruction of these popular culture tropes and mm-hmm. calling attention to like really obvious things. So like Brock getting tied up by a lasso of truth. And no one has ever said, I want to do you to Wonder Woman, even mm-hmm. though it just kind of makes sense that someone would have said that at some point. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, yes, someone should have said that at some point. And yes, it's great that Brock is the one who got to do that, I guess. But it's just, it calls attention to the sanitization of the stuff that they're lampooning, which has always been one of the core cornerstones of this show. So now I'm just waiting for the Order of the Triad to come back at some point, because I love those guys. <laughs> well, how did you feel about Brooklyn Nine-Nine this week? The the 9-8. Oh, God. I've, I've, I had... I, the only thing I laughed at more than Brooklyn Nine-Nine this week was Elementary. Mm-hmm. And I just... I enjoyed this thoroughly. I enjoyed Boyle being ridiculously jealous of uh, Damon Wayans Jr. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I enjoyed just everyone trying to cope with the 9-8 being in the office because they had to deal with a different precinct coming in because of, like, water damage or something really bizarre. Not bizarre, but something mundane like that. And just navigating that and just the politics, excuse me, of that. And then the idea to, like, have their office outside (laughs) so that they can get work done and actually get work done was just really really great and this cast still never fails to be really really funny and i mean any any episode where santiago is choking people winner yeah yeah any episode where andre brower uh captain hull gets to be petty is a good episode i love when he gets to be petty (laughs) it's so fun it's always fun um and the other thing that i really liked about this episode that i didn't necessarily anticipate is how quickly Jake was aware of and, and considerate about uh, Charles' insecurity. Um, yeah. and, and that he, that's not something that was like, oh, I didn't realize, but you're really, like, that's the, this is maybe the, the arc that we might have expected given this is a thing that lots of shows have done. Like, yeah. all the shows have done this, but they didn't do that. They went a slightly different way with it. And while the he's really a uh, bad cop thing was very pat, um, 
it's still, you know, it's still, I think, what ended up being overall successful, like, B or B story, I guess. I guess it's the B story seemed pretty equal. Um, yeah, it seemed, for once, it seemed really equal. Brooklyn Nine-Nine's had a problem kind of off and on where if they have a C plot, the show tends to kind of suffer a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I always prefer if there's just an, I really just, I really like my comedies just to have an A plot, but I'm really old school like that. No other plot. Mm-hmm. Um, but Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I think, works best if there's, a, at the very most, just a B plot. Having a C plot tends to cause something to feel unbalanced. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Um, well, speaking of unbalanced, let's move on to Tracy's <laughs> girlfriend. I can't resist that transition. No, that was solid. That was solid work. <laughs> that text was not meant for Josh. Okay, important, right, so important, wait, important, no, important, important question. question. Yeah, wait, is it the same question? Text atrophy or text emergency? This is the question of the week. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's it's text emergency. Okay, because text atrophy... It just works better. I like no. It's text emergency. Okay, I enjoy that this actually happened organically. Uh, (laughs) Just like it rolls off the tongue. No, we're not doing a bit right now. This is not a bit. (laughs) Uh, But but that it is when I spent. And I was like, this is a fun song, but I can't engage with this song because like caveman versus uh, astronauts style. Like I'm just too busy contemplating and making arguments both ways. Um, For me, the core of this episode is you stupid bitch. Um, yeah. So how what how did you feel about this episode and where it brought us by the end of the episode? Um, I really liked this episode in no small part because the I just the big thing that I loved about this episode, apart from you stupid bitch, was the fact that when she got this text, everything in the office stopped, and it felt completely and totally organic. It didn't feel forced in any way. It was just like. Oh my god, honey, you need to do something about this now. We totally understand. And she's like, holy hell, I love West Covina. <laughs> <laughs> Let's all move Let's there. all move to West Covina. No, so the fact that everyone was like, and it wasn't like a dream sequence where she thought that this was how it was going to play. No, these people were really concerned for her because she sent a text to this guy. Sent a text to Josh that was not meant for Josh. So she's like, this is amazing that you guys just went, yeah, no, they're okay with this. And then they're going to get the musical number. <laughs> well, because it's just, it's like the show saying, we acknowledge this is the more important part of the show. And we yeah. are not going to stand in the way of that. Let's continue right. where this story needs to go. Yeah, absolutely. Right. In a funny way. We're not going to put her job in jeopardy because yeah. she needed to do this. Which is great, because I don't think anyone was going to fire her anyway. <laughs> no, definitely not. And- if she did, she'd just start her own firm, let's be honest. And the fact that she hasn't done that is fine, and better, in fact. So, no, but then, I mean, just, you stupid bitch is just, it's great. It's just so great. Like, the kind of the, the kind of meddler-esque type of approach that they gave the number. And it's just, it resonated in a lot of ways. I Like you and I had mentioned at the top of this, it just, it, we've all been there. In some sort of way where we're just like, you stupid son of a bitch. Why did you do that? And it's just, yeah, now she's just completely and totally alone. There's no one else to help her now, basically, except Paula. And that was the other thing that I really liked about this episode was Paula's marriage is okay a little bit again. And I'm so happy that it is. And I'm so glad that he's, that her husband is really into her life like this. 
And I think that's just really great as well. I mean, it wasn't, oh, honey, you need to change for me type of thing, blah, blah, blah. It's just like, oh, you've got this really rich life that you're living. Let me be a part of it. And it's just like, this is really great. So, no, the show as a whole was really great. And also, I'm just kind of happy that Josh put two, one and two together. Because I thought for a second he wasn't because Josh, not the brightest bulb in the box. Mm -hmm. But he figured it out and he was upset about it. Yeah. And I was really, really happy about that. And I was I was happy that Greg was upset about it. And yeah, so the only thing that kind of grossed me out was take away fondue, take out fondue. Because no, no, we're not doing that. Don't care what he says, the cheese would uh, curdle. Yeah, it would yeah no. so how did you feel about crazy? How did you feel about this? Yeah, I think the um, the weight that they gave her kind of meltdown yeah. um, and self self-loathing was absolutely warranted and and even overdue and just yes this is a show that has not dealt with her dumping her pills they had the one episode where she went to to try to get her prescriptions back but but she hasn't gone back to her therapist which is disappointing yeah and and so maybe this is what's gonna push her to do that but the the examination of of again self-loathing and depression within um this character and within this really beautifully written well-performed theoretically like very upbeat oh you you all sing along you know this one you know like it the presentation of it i think also enhanced the the message of it and what the show is exploring and the way that the show does not back down from just like because she's such a sunny and competent and like she's like spouting off different legal stuff and and all that at, just at the drop of a hat she's a very bright together person but she also is dealing with some really intense stuff and some you know sh- some significant uh issues i like i love that the show never has the one negate the other yeah um it's, i think that's really important and, and really just something that most representations i can think of of that we see of characters like this that are theoretically dealing with issues like like Rebecca, um, just don't tend to do. So that I think that was all great. But I think what ex- actually really elevates the episode beyond that, because by itself it would be a fantastic, good job, thumbs up to Crazy Ex Girlfriend. But like you say, we got this long overdue stuff with Paula, really great. Um, having the core issue. And their relationship, their marriage being, she's not talking uh, to him because she thinks he won't listen. And as soon as she starts talking, he's listening. It was just wonderful. It was, it was, it was, it was wonderful. And then to add on top of that, Greg acknowledging himself falling into cycles of destructive behavior with regards to Rebecca, too, was just... a again a really fantastic thing I, I love that they do not present like okay well she likes josh but really she should be getting together with greg because they're so they're so similar it's such a great fit they would be terrible for each other right yes. now they would be horrible for each other it'd be super easy and it would seem like it was a good thing but it would be very destructive uh and not and cause them both to get worse probably if yes. they got together right now. And I love the show's awareness of that, that they don't present an easy, a person to fix her. Right. Um, and I mean, the only person who can fix her is her. And I think that's where we're 
gradually going to head as the season winds down mm-hmm. is that she has to fix her she has to be willing to fix herself is the always kind of the key question and whether or not she can whether or not she has the ability to do that she still you still always need a support system and she doesn't have that right now aside from Paula and that's all you need sometimes but mm-hmm. she she has to be willing to make that jump yeah and whether or not she's willing to is a really good question at this point absolutely and i think daryl would be there for her if she asked him to be but i think so too yeah she doesn't see him as that support system but but i think he would be so that's something that i think that the show can also probably explore should they choose to any final thoughts on crazy ex-girlfriend or should we move on to jane we should move on to jane what did you think this week we had the question answered about the the hot teacher yeah that was disappointing Mm um um i think i'm I'm kind of str- I've decided that I'm kind of struggling with Jane a little bit. Okay. Um, in part because, and I was talking about this with a friend of mine who caught up on the show over the break and is just like loves it. Like she watched all of season one and the half of season two that she hadn't seen like in a matter of like two weeks. And she was just like, I'm not sure if I like the show anymore. And I just, she was feeling like Jane wasn't being written the same way. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't agree with that. But I think the big problem is, especially in this episode, but progressively, all the characters are kind are kind of feeling like they're on their own shows at this point. And that's kind of troubling for me. Like, Jane's off doing school and baby raising. Raphael's off doing Petra and Hotel. And Michael's off doing Mutter and uh, Sinrostro, who are now re- related, because of course they are. Dun, 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 <laughs> type of thing, which, I mean, is a perfect little twist, and I, 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 I like that idea and the dynamics that it opens up, but it just feels like three different shows happening at once, and mm-hmm. I need them to start, like, coalescing again and, like, centering around Jane a little bit more. But individual elements are still working really well. Like, even if I'm not crazy about the fact that they're going to start dating, apparently, and it's just like, but, but, no... I don't, I don't really want that. I'm not interested in this. Mm-hmm. And just that sort of thing. I mean, the only thing I really, really responded to this week was Rogelio and uh, Ziomara. Mm-hmm. And just their connection and them, like, trying to sort out one another. And Ziomara trying to remember where her priorities were and what those were and how much longer she has reasonably to go after those priorities. And then just the very adult conversation of... Well, I don't really want kids right now. I was hoping for the next 20, 30 years to be about me. And I think that's just such a big thing to say to this this man that, A, you're really in love with, but B, is also the father of your other child. And I think that's just a really big, mature thing for the show just to put out there. Um, and that was the part I really loved about this episode, more than the rest of it. But, yeah, so I'm I'm kind of feeling a little antsy about Jane. How you feel? How did you feel about this episode? Well, to just pick up where you left yeah. off with with Zoe and Rogelio, um, there's also the added element of he wants to have a kid yes. and raise a kid, and the reason he hasn't been able to do that is because you kept his kid from him, not right. intentionally the whole time. She didn't have a way to get in, in touch with him, but certainly at, at least initially. So if she yeah. had not done that. 
his life would have been completely different, but he would have raised a kid. They, you know, yeah. so, so adding that element just makes it all, uh, and, and right. have, having her still be honest about it, I think is yeah. so important and really speaks to the respect between the two characters. It's very important. And it also is, if you're going to have a reason for them to not be together. This is a really good reason. This like is a much better reason the, than pretty much any other. Right. Yeah. It's like the reason. There isn't, I can't really think of another reason. No. Because it has to be something huge if it's going to be legitimate. It's not going to feel like a, a put on. And uh, to have it be something that can not throw one of the characters under the bus. <laughs> like, yes. If somebody cheated on somebody or something, then yeah, then there are other big things you could do to break them up, but not if you're going to just have both of them come off as uh, not wrong. Um, yes. So I look forward to different things. Exactly. And, and, and that's, and again, I really appreciate the show's handling of that. So I agree with that. Um, when we had all these different storylines going on and Jane was the center of that, of the love triangle, it was a reason for everything to feel a little bit more tied together because there was a reason for Jane to be in scenes with Raphael and with Michael and without that tie, while I'm very glad we're not doing that right now, very, yeah. very glad. Um, yeah, I, I don't disagree that it's, it's a little scattered. Um, I, I think I'm more on board still with it than, sure, than you sure. are, but uh, I, I definitely see your point. Um, I'm just kind of hoping that hot teacher is something that it gets resolved in the next few weeks. I, I like that it, wasn't that Jane was just inventing everything though. Maybe yeah. that's something that they'll explore at a certain point with a different character. But I mean, I also love they don't try to pretend that after making it, taking a pass at your, your teacher, you, you could just go back to writing romance right. novels that your teacher was reading. Um, yeah. I think that was a good yeah, way to resolve that. Um, but that's about all I have for, for Jane this week. I'm, I, I like what they gave Louisa as well. I like that. I like that they're bringing together the Mutter uh, right. and the and the, yes. the Sinrosa stuff because it, it ties Louisa back more into everything. Right, which I'm always in fa- favor of because I love Louisa. Yeah. Um. So, what wins your week in comedy? Um, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yeah, I always want to give it to Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but it's Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which in a weird way because this episode was funny but also just really not funny (laughs) (laughs) but comedy doesn't have to be funny this is an important rule to remember about comedy is that it doesn't have to be funny very important rule to remember well now we will take a break and come back with our weekend genre some things that happened for the first time Sing. He's the best. Right. Ooh. 
This week in genre, we're going to talk a little bit about the X-Files, Home Again, and then Agent Carter, The Atomic Job, uh, Supergirl for the Girl Who Has Everything, The Flash, Welcome to Earth 2, and we'll round things up with DC's Legends of Tomorrow, White Knights. So first up is The X-Files. A lot of mixed reaction to this episode. Very mixed reaction to this episode. How did you feel about it? I, uh, I don't think it's anywhere near as good as some people think it is. Uh, and I also don't think it's as terrible as other people think it is. So I think the parts of it that work, work. Um, I think you give Gillian Anderson stuff like this to play. She's going to kill it. And I think she does in this episode. Yes. She's struggling with her mother's her mother's passing. I loved the series memory we got with that. Um, I didn't, I didn't, really didn't need like the actual clips from previous episodes. God, Duchovny looks like a child and now he's all jowled. <laughs> but uh, I, I did like that they referenced back to these other, you know, her time in the coma and, and all these other things. I thought that that really, really worked. Um, and I've yet to see a show that isn't The Wire do homeless people well. And this is, X-Files is not has not changed that. So uh, I really didn't think that part of the episode worked. I didn't think it was horrible and offensive. I just thought it was kind of mis- misjudged and um, there wasn't enough there there. I definitely didn't think it was scary. Um, wh- how, did you, how did you feel? Where did you fall on the spectrum? Um, Probably a little more negative than you did. I feel like that this episode is very much within like a season seven through nine vein, basically of, all right, we have this really nice concept of homeless people and street art. Let's see what we can do with it. And I think that's an interesting idea, but it's also just ended up being kind of a really boring, gross idea because of the dismemberment aspect of it, which was just really, really boring. But also it just ended up getting kind of heavy-handed, especially when they went after the councilwoman and all the idea of trash that she was throwing away and compacting. And I just went... Oh, guys, I get it. We're treating homeless people like trash. I understand. You're hitting this no. You're hitting this nail a little hard. And so, transitioning that to a discussion about did we throw William away like trash? Just it felt weird to me. And yeah, I just I couldn't reconcile the idea that she felt like she was throwing her child away like trash. To protect him, basically. And it also just goes back to my idea that Mulder's a horrible human being as well. Because Mulder, you, you, you left. That's why she had to give the kid up by herself. You, you left. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it was an okay-ish episode. I liked the concept of a painting coming to life and, like, causing a reckoning type of thing. But it just... Eh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I 100% absolutely buy her knowing that she did the right thing on paper to to yeah. protect William and yet constantly every single day of her life feeling guilt about it. I understand guilt. I think the yeah. framing of it as trash yeah. is what what I hung up on. Yeah. Because I get guilt over this. I totally get guilt over this. But the idea that she treated her son like trash is... Nothing I can buy into. I can buy that she feels like that, or she worries that, even though it's wrong, yeah. that that she is a you stupid bitch, right? Is <laughs> that she's just constantly like, especially when a case like this comes up, that she yeah. is just ha- is filled with loathing about that decision. Sure. Um, 
and that it's always I, I can I can buy the idea that it's just always with her that she doesn't talk about it most of the time doesn't come out most of the time but um yeah so I thought that I like the direct comparison to I was like how how are they going to connect these two oh god really they're just giving her a monologue here and this is like to be fair it's the X-Files and they they give monologues and I think that's I, we talked about this a little bit when the premiere started but at the same time, I'm just like, I kind of respect the fact that the show is pretending like it's still the 90s in how they're scripting things. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of vaguely admirable. Yeah. And, and the parts of the episode that worked for me really did. Um, yeah. I liked the the flashlights making the X. I mean, come on, guys. I, I, that's yeah. that's fun. I, so in, in general, I was net positive on it. Um, yeah. And the scenes that with... with, with um, with Scully and at the hospital and that just the questions, the lingering unanswered questions and what that means for her and does kind of to her in this episode um, really, really worked for me. So I, I, it's disappointing that it didn't all come together, but certainly I would put it above the, the premiere. Oh yeah. Easy. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Next up is agent Carter and the atomic job. We didn't talk about agent Carter previously. I mean, I should say last week and this week, the core issue I've been having with the season returned and returned in a big way. There's no chemistry between Peggy and the scientist. There's none. It's like, he's the only person on the entire show that doesn't have amazing chemistry with Haley Atwell, at least to me. Other people seem to think that they are sizzling together. And I don't, I don't see it. It feels so labored and they're trying so hard. Um, do you see that chemistry as being there? What am I missing? I don't think it's sizzling. I think it's a difference of attraction. I don't think that either of them are used to being attracted to people like one another, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where a lot of this is coming from. It's I'm not saying opposites attract. I'm saying that they're just they're very different in terms of what they're used to being attracted to, possibly. I'm 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 just making an assumption because we have no idea what Wilkes' romantic life was before this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's he she he is someone that doesn't have powers or secrets or that sort of thing. He's just kind of a normal guy who just happens to be really smart. And I think that's where the frust- maybe that's where the disconnect for frustration is coming from is the fact that they're not able to talk to one another in a way that makes sense they're still really awkward around one another and i think the decision to have him like on a different plane of existence or however we're spinning wherever he is doesn't help because i think the idea of like having more physical contact between the two of them would be more interesting as well but i think there's just something kind of courtly almost about how they talk to one another they're not quite sure and they're still trying to figure one another out in a lot of ways and i think that's interesting but i i I can take your point about them not having chemistry in a traditional sense i just think that there's something slightly more interesting happening but at the same time i'm not thrilled that they're like he's on a different plane of existence that they have to spray him with yeah well i get him to appear yeah i i I absolutely see what you're saying, and I agree. Uh, I I like this idea. I can buy this idea that she likes the idea of him. Yeah. And the idea of being with someone like him. But I just, the character's a big nothing. He's just a, just like the least, the most bland 
thing. And it's the character, it's the performance, it's what he's being given. He's just like blandly heroic because a bad thing happened to him. Um, and I just, every other, every other part of the show is more interesting to me. Like over the top, ridiculously hammy Ken Marino. God, so great. Is more interesting to me than like bland, good guy. Like he just feels like the, he's good because he's good kind of. Yeah. But yeah. I also feel like that just kind of fits into the genre that they're playing in and the time period that they're playing okay. in as well. Well, fair enough. And I think that's maybe why I'm okay with it. But this episode as a whole, I felt, was just so much fun. I mean, it was a heist episode. I love heist episodes of anything. And we actually got a heist. <laughs> we got a heist. And it, it had, like, a team with a power walk that then they had to turn around because Jarvis moved the car to the wrong corner. And it's just like, this is so great. Yeah, and I was I was just I had so much fun watching this episode. I had a ton of fun watching this episode. I really liked uh, that they gave Rose that they brought her back and gave her stuff to do. Right? Right? Yeah. I just I want I, I want Peggy and Rose just to just go beat up people in Los Angeles now for the rest of the season. I don't care about the rest of this. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, did you have any other specific things you want to dive in with, or, or is it time for Supergirl? Um, Madame Mask stuff, I think, continues to be really interesting, and I like that she's kind of steadily losing herself, possibly, or finding this part of herself that she's been repressing, depending on how we want to split it, whether or not it's the X matter that's taking over, or it's this part of her personality that's always been there, but she's always subverted in a lot of ways. And I'm really interested to see that continue to play out, because... Man, she scared the shit out of Curry Graham, and then she scared the shit out of me. So I'm I'm all in on this. <laughs> Very nice. Um, let's move on to Supergirl. For the girl who has everything, um, apparently this was originally planned to be the season finale before more like it got extended or there are more scripts added on. Because uh, yeah. of course this is the thirteenth episodes before they got their right. back nine. Um, and I did not realize that until after I watched it, and and I didn't realize it until you told me just now. And that makes so much more sense uh, to me because yeah. uh, I, I thought that there was a lot of really good stuff here. Um, I don't know how well some of it worked, but other parts of it I thought were, were really very, very good. So all the stuff with Kylie Lee um, and and Kara, all that, all that stuff worked. Um, all the stuff of I'm going to go yell at you and tell you secret identities and everything because I'm angry and we need to fill time definitely not working for me uh but i also really thought that uh laura benanti was really good in 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 her scenes as well so like the the when they kept going back to family that was incredibly powerful for me and i thought that that really worked um other stuff you know can we just just get rid of maxwell lord just anything with him is terrible on this show it is it is what did you think um I come at this episode from a really weird perspective in that it's an adaptation of a really great Superman story uh, called For the Man Who Has Everything. And it basically has the same plot of Superman gets connected to this parasitic Black Mercy. And instead of it being a whole team in the comic, it's Wonder Woman, Batman, and Robin who have to save him Mm -hmm. from Mongol, this creepy, super-powered, near-invulnerable alien guy. And Justice League Unlimited did an adaptation of it that's great. It's like the only version of an Alan Moore comic book that Alan Moore approves of, which tells you everything you need to know about how great this episode of television is, is that Alan Moore likes someone adapting his work, and Alan Moore hates when other people adapt his work. (laughs) So 
for me, this episode was a kind of a weak homage to that because I didn't get enough of them on Krypton mm-hmm. and this idea of this is the life that she thinks that she had wanted all along. Or like when she says at the end that she had been fantasizing a lot about being back, what her life on Krypton would have been like, I was just like, well, one, we haven't really seen you even think about that. And two, your life on Krypton seemed really, really boring from our perspective and really short-lived, which I think was my main problem is that we kept having to flash back to Hank playing Kara in the office, which Benoist was great in that. She was hilarious. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was just like, but this is time I could have been spent with her on Krypton, her interacting with her parents, her feeling her way out for this fantasy that she's getting sucked into that I never really felt like was convincingly sucked into. And so I really kind of struggled with that aspect of it. But then you play back up this idea of family against one another, not family against one another, but this idea of she has this family unit here for her and to weigh out this lack of a Kryptonian family is still a really good message. It just didn't feel as impactful for me. So when she's beating the crap out of Nan, saying, I've lost them again, it's just like, I really wish I felt like you'd lost them again. Because <laughs> I didn't get to see you spend a lot of time with them. So that's where I kind of ended up on it, is that I wanted a lot more from them. But then I was also just really upset that Astro's dead. Yeah. This is a thing, this is a trope that lots of sci-fi shows do. Right, like, yeah. Like all of them do. Yeah, everyone does this. Yeah, where they have to... Like like a show like Buffy wasn't even that one's a dream world and one... Or like a disease world and one's the real one. It's just that like there are two, but you can only... Two parallel universes, you can only exist in one. Which one are you going to exist in? Um, and so when I, when the episode starts, like, oh, they're doing this already. This seems a little early to pull out this particular trope. It um, is a little early to pull it out. That was my other problem. Yeah. And, uh, and I do think certain parts of it really spoke to me, but I absolutely agree. Um, I feel like after this episode, we should have any sense of who her father is. She should also miss her father and not just her mother. Um, there, there was a real... Like they, they were like we got to make sure we get Kal El in there for some reason, but they spent no energy on making us get feel like they her parents were people. They were so focused on the dreamlike aspect of it that they didn't actually make us connect with or care about them. Um, but that being said, for me, when when she came out and woke up and was just like rage, that really worked for me. So I thought that, because yeah. that's, and again, that's down to the performance. That is down for the performance because she, she's fantastic in this entire episode. I think this is her best episode to date because she just gets to show such a range of stuff and it really deepens Kara in a lot of ways. Just the writing for it wasn't totally there, but the performance was saving all of it for me. Yeah. And also just, my sister is my best friend. Mm-hmm. I love her dearly. So when I see shows that actually show siblings who care for each other and really love mm-hmm. each other, that's a thing that always is going to speak to me because I feel like there aren't that many of them no. <laughs> on TV. Yeah. So this is very much that that aspect of it is in my wheelhouse um, to start with. So I think that that helps. But uh, and and I would have I guess I would have sacrificed some of the comedy to get a little bit more time in Krypton. Yeah, but I wouldn't have sacrificed a lot of it because it was funny. <laughs> 
Yeah. And also, I mean, the, I think the big question now to ask yourself about your sister anyway is, does she bring you ice cream and dumplings? Um, essentially, yeah. She, yeah. Ever, she will. Right. My sister's <laughs> awesome, man. She's like, the, like she, she hooks me up. No, she's great. Um, so uh, let's, <laughs> now I want ice cream and dumplings. So thank you for that. Who doesn't? Let's, let's, well, speaking of ice cream and dumplings and other fun, delicious, delicious, delightful things, uh, the Flash had Welcome to Earth too. And oh, finally. Super fun. I think it was a little overhyped for, for me. Yeah. So I think you liked it more than I did, uh, Noel. Sure. But um, from the time they went over to Earth 2 and, like, the first thing they did was take a selfie, I was like, this is going to be different and fun. Yes. And it was. It was a lot of different and fun. I mean, just that they followed up the selfie with Cisco and Barry freaking out at Henry Hewitt being a nice guy and just, like, kind of grabbing each other, like, in <laughs> fear. I was just like, oh, my God. I've been waiting for this all season. And it's so good. It's mm-hmm. so good. No, I really enjoyed this episode. Um, even just from the sheer doppelganginess of it all. Of We had Caitlin as Killer Frost. Ronnie came back as Deathstorm. And we met Cisco's evil doppelganger, Reverb. Which, better name than Vibe, by the way. Just <laughs> well, saying. Reverb is actually a minor character in the DC Comics. I don't know that he's an alternate version of mm-hmm. Cisco. I don't think he is. Um, but, so, but, I mean, it was also just great that Cisco's alternate evil doppelganger is a bad guy who talks too much and just does speeches and makes Darth Vader Cloud City offers to himself. It's just like, that is what a bad guy Cisco would be. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it felt, all of that stuff felt really good, but the larger emotional stuff of Barry getting sucked into this life of Barry 2 really really worked for me um even if it relies a little too heavily on this idea of one brief conversation between iris and barry talking about barry escaping basically to earth 2 to get away from patty and all this stuff but i mean he gets almost the life he wants where he's the flash but he's married to iris his mom and dad are still alive good god when he's talking to his mom on the phone Oh, the feels tears, the feels and the only thing that's wrong is that joe hates him <laughs> a lot and calls him bartholomew but no so just the the emotional spine of the episode i thought was really really good and just all the really other fun stuff that was happening in the episode was really really good but i also think to your point about being hyped up is just like yes i have been waiting for this pretty much all season because it was just like we had to sit through massive amounts of Legends of Tomorrow set up instead of dealing with Zoom and Earth 2 stuff. And so I was just like, oh, finally. Yes, I've been waiting for this. I was geared up for it. So the only thing that kind of fell flat was, again, the Caitlin and Jay stuff. And God, it's just really frustrating. The big thing is that Jay lost his powers on his own. So he's been lying to them. So now what else is he lying about? type of thing so who knows so yeah no you talked you talked to me about this episode for a while we haven't mentioned the the most important thing which is they found a reason to have jesse l martin sing which Mm. is a thing one should always do when one casts jesse l martin or this cast in general like i mean all of them basically all of them almost all of them can sing like really (laughs) sing yeah Uh, Yeah. which is why of course we led into the segment with Jesse L. Martin singing, because if that's a thing you can do, that's what you do. Um, so I, I, th- I think so much of this was well handled. The only concern I had with it, and what really tempered a lot of my ability to enjoy so much of it, 
is that Jesse is like probably dying or dead this whole time and i i couldn't get away from that so while we're while i'm trying to while i'm enjoying and trying to really get invested in all this other stuff that's going on with barry i can't help but be thinking why don't you save jesse and then we can have you get tied up into these hides like if they had saved jesse at the start of the episode somehow sure. like they have they had like surprise zoom and they managed to do that and and she was no longer in peril and she could be spending like off with her father or something for the episode and then he got tied into all these other things like iris saw him at the wrong place the wrong time and you know and, and then maybe something else happened that drew drew zoom back into the be the threat for the the end of the episode or something then i could have really embraced it but he <laughs> Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, sorry, Harry, as we're calling him, Harry risked his daughter's life and basically sentenced her to death out of loyalty to Barry. And Barry said, we will go save your daughter. And then he's like, Iris is pretty. <laughs> um, so I really have trouble with, with that part of it. Sure. And I think that's perfectly valid and an angle that I think I missed because i was so caught up in all the other stuff mm -hmm. but no i think that's perfectly valid and like you said it contradicts this idea of barry finally kind of embracing being a hero and now it's just like oh you're kind of a selfish jerk again god damn it barry <laughs> yeah yeah but i'm looking that being said i, I really enjoyed the episode i'm really looking yeah. forward to non-flash barry <laughs> next week these are wingtips i don't have a lot of traction <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely uh deadshot also so fun I oh like god yeah. michael Rowe was having a blast yeah. being a bumbling idiot and he was really really funny he yeah. was having more fun in, like, the five minutes totally he has here than he ever did on Arrow. Mm -hmm. And it was just a more unexpected thing. It wasn't yeah. It wasn't another character we've seen on Flash, necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, it I was thought... a really solid goof, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, well, ne up next, we're talking about solid goofs. We have to talk about not solid goofs, uh, which is so much of what D DC's Legends of Tomorrow became for me in this episode, White Knights. Um, okay, Victor Garber, amazing really fantastic scene we got with him and some really good stuff for Jax too. Um, but this is the fourth episode and this is the fourth episode in which they have argued about it, whether they should be doing what they're doing. WTF team up, go on the adventure, leave the tavern. You're, you're a team now. You're going to slay the dragon and come. Oh my God. This is, this is adventuring one Oh one. What are they doing? I don't know. Um, one of my big hangups with the episode um, was the fact that Rip would even consider doing this. Mm -hmm. It's just like, no, dude, you stole a time ship. You recruited seven other randos to help you that weren't going to impact the time, screen, time stream. And suddenly Martin Donovan shows up and says, all is forgiven if you come back. And it's just like, I, I have to go talk to my team about this. No, Rip, you don't have to go talk to your team about this and by your team you meant martin and jacks because they were the only ones on the ship for you to talk to <laughs> that weren't busy with other things at the time and it's just like guys rip you weren't going to say yes mm -hmm. ever and if you had said yes why the fuck did we do this well, that's what I feel like every episode is doing. It's every episode. It's just the most insecure show. It's, it right. keeps, keeps keeps constantly needing to reassert its need to exist. Um, yeah. 
And, and going back to Martin and Jacks, the scene we get with them in the hallway, uh, as you talked about being very Shakespearean, I'll throw that one to you in a moment, uh, is fantastic, but it is not valid because Jack's point of he didn't choose this and what happens to his mom if he if he disappears. Um, that's not a thing you can have him argue after he's chosen not to go home, which he did in episode two. Yeah. So this scene needed to happen because it was, I think it was really, really good and the best material right. they've given either of them to play all season. But it needed to happen in episode two. Don't ask me to have this conversation again. Right. And to pile onto it, it was just like, oh, wait, so you didn't send the whole team to go do this mission at the end so everyone could be angry about the fact that you weren't treating them like a team. Again. <laughs> yep. And it's just like, guys... Be a team. For the love of Pete, please just be a team. Operate together. And this gets to, like, one of my big problems with the show so far is that that opening is great where they're getting into the Pentagon and stealing some stuff from the Pentagon because everyone gets to work together. Look how much fun that was. Oh, no, now we need to do three plots where everyone's doing different things. And I get the need to do that from a production standpoint. I get the need to do that from a storytelling standpoint. But you also need to make sure that I don't hit the same emotional we need to be a team beat again. Yeah. I can't do it. I can't do it. Spoiler alert. The fun thing about team ups. Is, is that they team up. Is when they team up. Right. That's the point of them. Uh, yeah. Anyways. Okay. We need to stop talking about this because yeah. it's too frustrating and we've it's already talked about it. blood pressure raising. Yes. Yeah. So what wins your week in genre? This is really hard. It's really hard, because Agent Carter gave me a heist episode. Flash gave me an alternate universe episode. Those are my two favorite things in the world. Um, but I'm going to go with The Flash, just because I was so hyped up about it. So The Flash wins, but like by the thinnest of thinnest of hairs. Oh, The Flash definitely wins. Oh, great. I feel much better about this. My funny Valentine, The Flash. Absolutely The Flash. And I wasn't as big on it as you were, but still. Yeah. Still The Flash. Jesse L. Martin singing Dainu. Um, so, right. uh, let's move on. Uh, we'll take a break, and we'll come back with our week in drama and reality. In reality and drama, uh, we're going to talk a little Top Chef Restaurant Wars before we dive in with London Spy. Uh, I'll be talking about episode four, but Noel, you've caught up with the first four, so we'll talk a bit more about that before we move on to American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, The Run of His Life, uh, a non-heist, tears, elementary, a room, a view with the room, and then we'll wrap things up with American Crime Season 2, Episode 6. So first up is Restaurant Wars, Ding Dong, The Man Bun's Dead. At least so far, I haven't watched Last Chance Kitchen. I don't know what oh, happened there, but do you want do you want to look up and find out what happened? No, <laughs> no. Okay, 
Um, no, yes. Um, this was like a two-part Restaurant Wars, which was exciting. But also, like we were talking about a little bit before we started recording, Top Chef finally figured out how to fix Restaurant Wars. Mm-hmm. Which, after ten years... God, why didn't you fix it sooner? Yeah. I mean, I, I liked the idea of doing dinner and lunch. I thought that was a I thought that was a really fun extra layer of challenge. But the fact that everyone has to be the executive chef, everyone has to do front of the house, or at least apparently either or. Either or. And it's just like, oh. Well that solves the main problem of restaurant wars, which is the front of the house person went home or the executive chef went home. Thank God we've solved that problem because why anyone would volunteer to be executive chef or friend of the house in restaurant wars at this point didn't make any sense to me and stopped making sense around like season seven. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you don't do this anymore, guys. It's bad. <laughs> you go home for this. Yeah. But instead, you cooked three bad dishes and were bad at the front of the house and had a cocktail at the, at the hostess thing, which was just weird. <laughs> Yeah, no, so I was I was glad Philip went home. I was glad that they fixed Restaurant Wars. I lost air for a minute. That's how happy I am that they fixed all this. No, so it was a it was a nice two-parter. Um, yeah, so I'm still not really, like, into this season yet, mm-hmm. which is frustrating at this point because there's now seven of them left, and it's like, I should have a favorite. I do not really have a favorite. Well, see, I've got Marjorie because... Yeah. Uh, and uh, she's a baker after my heart. Uh, I, I, I enjoy her making bread and not sucking at dessert. And th- I, I love that they'll be able to theoretically point to her now as you can do dessert on this show and really succeed because she's done or that like bread. Yeah, like a, a bunch or bread. Yeah. And the fact that that is a new idea in, in season, what, what are we? 13, 13? I think 13 or 14, yeah. Yeah, is, is really amazing. I also thought she did not get enough uh, respect from the judges for, you know, training all of the servers for the second half of the, the service uh, and doing the, all the prep work necessary so that uh, her fe- fellow chef could succeed in front of the house. Yeah. Um, which uh, the judges didn't know about that. It didn't seem like it came up in the edit. Why would it? It would only have come up if they had lost, I think, if their team had been on the bottom. Yeah, so, as a way to split hairs for her to win. Yeah. Or not to be eliminated. Not rather. to be eliminated, yeah. Uh, but no, I, I mean, and I think, it, correct me if I, I'm wrong, I feel like the last few restaurant wars um, have mostly been, everybody's done a really good job because they've, been able to watch previous seasons yeah. and learn and not make some of the mistakes. Right. What the hell was up with that team, man? <laughs> Why did you stop service for the judges? What idiot? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I think adding the extra pressure of the second meal, um, yeah. they couldn't do that. They couldn't just, like, I, I don't think it's a coincidence, I guess, that this yeah. is the first team that had to deal with this, first season that had to deal with this, and it went from, you know, every year, like, this is the best restaurant wars ever to no people just screwed up a bunch um, yeah the food was bad like it was bad which yeah. is like they don't say that like too much at this point in the show because the casting process really highlights mm-hmm. that we want young competent chefs as opposed to guys who run food trucks because probably Clicchio doesn't want to eat that food anymore yeah um, so I, I like that it was a new challenge, uh, and like you say, I love that nobody could hide. You couldn't just ride the middle. Yeah. And uh, I look for. I mean, I was super invested after the first half. Yeah, I, I was too. I, yeah. So like yeah. having that actually be a two-parter, I was 
it was both very effective and also kind of annoying because I I've been I had been wanting to watch it. I watched it live the first time in I can't even remember, um, so yeah. that I could see exact you know find out right away. But uh, yeah, I I had a lot of fun with Restaurant Wars. I guess is is where I'll leave it and. Well, I'll, after we finish recording, I'll go find out what happened to Man Bun in uh, the in Last End's Kitchen. But for now, you watched London Spy. I did. What finally. did you think? I I want to hear more about why you're really enjoying the show. For me, I like it. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting for the most part. Um, but I think the thing that I'm most interested in is this allegorical question about why does a relationship end. And how how's that and what that means to the person who's left, basically, and how you cope with that. And I, that's at the core of the show and the idea of like figuring out a mystery and going back through. I really like that idea and I really like this concept. The spy stuff just keeps getting in the way for me. I'm just like, I get it. It's part of your allegorical framework and it's why the show basically is on the air. Because if this was just about a gay guy whose partner of eight months left him for no discernible reason, this isn't a show. It's a movie, but it's not a show. So we need elements that point to a larger conspiracy, point to paranoia, and this sort of thing. So little contrivances to get that moving, like Jim Broadbent's character, Scotty, being a former spy, or the fact that he has a little hidey hole in a warehouse for no discernible reason for his notebook of poetry. I'm just like, why do you have that in this abandoned warehouse so far from where you live? I don't quite understand. And so like little things like that. And then whether or not the, the S and M attic as a thing just rubbed me the wrong way because it feels so mundane at this point that Oh, he was really into S&M and he didn't tell you about it. And it's just like, no, guys, Fifty Shades of Grey has been out for a little while now. We're all kind of okay with this as a concept. We don't need this anymore. Um, But yeah, so I'm really into performances. I'm really into a lot of the aesthetics and how they frame memory. And um, But it's just the spy stuff keeps intruding on the larger allegorical stuff for me. So when Danny has that funeral on the beach this week... I loved it. It was the best thing that the show had done for me. I really keyed into it. I really responded to it. And then it was just like, oh, we're going to, we figured out, we're going to hack what he, what, what Alex slash Alistair figured out and why it was so important and why he got killed. And it's just like, oh, I don't, I don't care. Even if what he figured out, which is a way to tell if people are lying, feeds right back into the allegorical idea of, relationships and the fact that we all kind of lie in relationships even if it's just a little white lie but now you can tell type of thing and that kind of thing of he did it because he was upset about lying to him possibly and so it's that it's an intersection that should make me okay with the spy story and it does to a certain extent but i was also just like until this episode i was basically just like I hate all this spy stuff and this paranoia stuff. And I hate the contrivance of Scotty needing to be a spy so that it could progress, basically. So I saw seams, which was my big problem with the show as constructed as this. I shouldn't see seams. Mm -hmm. But you tell me. You've been really gung-ho. You've been waiting for me to catch up on this. So tell me that I'm wrong for not (laughs) being as enthused about this show. 
Well, I, the fact that the spy stuff and, and Scotty as a former spy doesn't work for you is, I think, very telling. Because for me, that part of the show really does work. And Scotty is my, I think, my favorite character. Yeah, no, by far. I, uh, but it's Broadbent. I mean, he's guys. He's good. great. He's pretty good. Yeah. He's pretty good at Broadbent. Um, so I, I, I really have responded to that character and his relationship with Danny um, yes. and watching him make the choices that he does throughout the series because. He has way more knowledge than Danny. So every time he chooses to do something or to pro- allow the story to progress, basically, yeah, it carries a lot more weight and meaning. Um, I thought the scene, uh, now that you've seen it, from the second episode in the, the, the forest was really, really good. And some of the other material that... that They've gotten to play the actors, but specifically Wishon Broadbent have gotten to play has been really uh, effective. And like, while this the spy stuff isn't working for you, like it, for me in the third episode when we find out that somebody gave Danny AIDS was devastating. It was really yeah, affecting. That How- scene of the clinic is intense and terrific. Yeah. So so I guess I was just more connecting because I wasn't. Uh, at least on a con- like a conscious level, I wasn't really connecting with the allegorical elements of it. I wasn't examining that part of it as much. So mm-hmm. maybe I was able to kind of dive in more with just the the character and the characters and the the performances because I wasn't uh, wasn't looking for the allegorical element. So right. I look forward to really, especially you know, going into the finale this week, approaching it with that. Perspective. Oh, is that this week? I thought it was six. Is it only five? It's only five. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. I look forward to, to going into that with um, with this new lens to think about it through. But I also think that they just do such a spectacular job of establishing the Alex-Danny relationship. I think that was so important, and they do such a fantastic job of that in the first episode that I think it does sustain yes. the rest of, of the episodes, at least so far. Um, so I guess that's really what I kept keying back into. I think they made Alex a really interesting character. They made Scotty a really interesting character, and they made Danny a very relatable character. Yeah. He's your he's entry a, point. Yeah. He's a terrific one, too, and yeah. Wishaw is just insanely great in this. Yeah. So I think maybe I was just overhyping it for you. Maybe a little bit, but yeah. I also... You were really the only one, like, telling me anything about it, apart from... Um, Caitlin over at TV.com reviewed the, at least did like a quickie review of the pilot and was really, really hyped up about it. And a lot of people were really hyped up about it about the t- at the Television Critics Association. Mm-hmm. But like, it was all just like kind of be- just below the radar stuff. So I hadn't really read about it. So I read Caitlin's review and you talking about it was basically my exposure to getting to the show. Yeah. I have a so. feeling that the critics, uh, TCA, got the whole season. Probably, yeah, because it's five episodes. And just watched it all, and then that's why there was some buzz about it right before it premiered. But a show like this, you can't talk about it if people haven't seen it. Right. So I would imagine that's why we're not hearing about it week to week, because for a lot of people, this is old news. Um, Right, and it's it's already aired in Britain, so it's just like, oh, we're good. Thanks. Fair enough. Well, one of the shows that is absolutely not under the radar is it has made as big a splash as we thought it would. American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. This week we get the Bronco Chase, the run of his life. Uh, How did this compare to the uh, the pilot for you? It's still a terrific, really great show. Um, We had Carl uh, let us know that he wasn't, he was kind of on the fence about the show. Mm Mm-hmm, Yes. 
And we were just like, no, 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 you, you go watch it. And he came back and he was really excited. He was really <laughs> into it, which I, I don't know about you, but I felt pretty vindicated. And so, but no, this was a really great, what I loved about this episode was I was half expecting it just to be in the Bronco the entire time. And no, we dealt with the fact that this was a thing that the entire country ended up watching. I, I mean, I don't remember watching it. I'm fairly certain I didn't watch it, in fact. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't even know if my mom watched it. Um, but this was something that just, like, interrupted the, an NBA final. And that scene at the bar where they flip over to it and people are upset and then it just goes dead silent. Mm-hmm. It's just like, this is really great stuff. And it's so much about celebrity and media. It's just... I really, really respond to the show in a number of ways and just continuing the idea of like what the performances are doing is still really great. Like Schwimmer is just fantastic in this episode. He's fantastic. And then just little small bits of small cultural relevancy to today. Like the idea that the picture frames look like a gun and cops still apparently can't tell what a gun is, which is really depressing. But it's one of those things that is was relevant then and is relevant now and so the way that this show is really interweaving a lot of things that were important then but it's depressing that they're still speaking so loudly now is just one of the reasons why this show is just really really great i think and yeah no i i'm so excited for the rest of this season (laughs) and some of it's a little on the nose for me um that kind of that aerial shot where you have two black men um, on opposite sides of the fence to really drive home the fact that black people can have different opinions about the same thing. It's just like, oh, really? You mean black people aren't monoliths? Who would have thought type of thing? So it sometimes gets a little heavy handed, but at the same time, I don't mind all that much because the rest of it's still really good. And also this idea of heavy handedness works within the framework of basically this just being a melodrama just derived from real life and heavy-handedness is a part of melodrama so far as i'm concerned so it works i I could have done without it but it works how did you feel about this episode again like a lot of what you said I, i would absolutely agree with and um the the key thing here is theoretically a lot of your audience watched the bronco chase right so you don't need to show the bronco chase because everybody yeah. already watched it so instead yeah. we get a little bit inside the car which i think is important um yes. very but, important in fact yeah but the main thing we get is watching reactions to it and watching yeah. more specifically how this was a just like a touch point in the way we process news current like breaking news in our country um it was because it, it kind of shows before and after <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and I think that's an important uh, element to this story and to the way that this is uh, the the role that, that this trial, as we'll lead into, played in sort of the development of, like we've said, celebrity, but also 24-hour news cycle and constant to the second reporting, uh, regardless of what information you actually have. Right. Breaking news is always breaking now, so it's just news. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, th- I thought the episode really worked. Um, and I also look forward to what is coming up next. And yeah, there's the, the performances throughout are, are really good. So 
Is we'll Travolta talk... still working for you? Travolta, absolutely. Like, God, totally. Great. I'm happy. Yeah. yeah that's Yeah. Because I know, like, we talked about last week, is, like, people were kind of, like, really mixed on Travolta, but it's just like... I'm loving what he's doing. I think I'm it's super loving fun. all of it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Well, next up is Elementary. Speaking of, it's great. Uh, I love capital all caps. I tweeted about this. Love that they gave Sherlock a love interest, and that they brought back this character to be that love interest. Oh, so good. Yeah. No, it's great. Like it made up for the fact that the show teased me with a heist episode and then yanked it away from me. Yeah. <laughs> No, um, I think that's really the big thing about this episode was, um, oh goodness, what's Fiona mm-hmm. um, in this episode was just really great. And um, their Sherlock being totally receptive to how she operates and understanding how she operates and her knowing that he's going to be okay with it is really just powerful and terrific to watch. And then, but at the same time, I I mentioned when we discussed comedy that aside from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Elementary was the thing that made me laugh the hardest this year. This this week, it was just like, you like like her. (laughs) So, and it's just like, why is, this is so funny. It's just, I was laughing so hard, Kate. Like, my sides were hurting just a little bit. Because the interplay between Joan and Joan and Sherlock, but also at this point between Miller and Lou, is just so good and so ingrained that they do these little riffs now with one another, and it's just it's so funny and it feels so natural and it doesn't feel forced. It's just like, they have conversations like this, but there's still so much respect between the two of them and just oh. I love it, 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 I love it. And just <laughs> the whole conversation on the roof where I would like you to kiss me. Do you want to kiss me? And he's just like, and then it's just like, is that offer still on the table? It is, but not right now. And it's just like, okay. And it's just like, yes, this is so good. This is a consent. This is understanding what your partner wants. This is really... Powerful stuff that we're getting from a CBS procedural, the last place you would expect it. In a, for a lot of people, the last place you would expect it. Um, so yeah, yeah. Just when's come the back. last time you saw a neurally typical character like Fiona presented as other than a joke? Right. She's not a joke. She's she's, she's completely appreciated. Yeah, she's completely appreciated by everyone. And after watching the, um, that documentary I mentioned a few weeks ago, Autism and Love, <laughs> where one of the characters is very much like her in a lot of ways, it's just like, this is one of the, sorry, not one of the characters, one of the people in the documentary, God, I'm awful, um, is very much like Fiona. And it's just like, this is really, really spot on. This is really, really good. Some research went into the writing, some research went into the performance. And the most important thing is, is, is that unlike with a lot of other representations of neurotypically or spectrum type of stuff, is that they're out and saying it. Whereas a lot of characters on television are, well, they're just kind of special mm-hmm. and different. Because if we say that they are, then we have a responsibility to portray it accurately and in a way that doesn't come off as insensitive or horrible. So we can't say it. So we're not going to, and that's our get-out-of-jail-free card. 
thanks everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, no, we're not going to do that here. We're going to treat this with the respect it deserves. And thank goodness, because it's fantastic. Yeah. And having Joan immediately understand what's going on when, yes. when, when she sees the because book. Because she's attractive. Yeah, well, and because she knows Sherlock. And, right. and, and immediately, immediately respond with the whole like, like, the, the prepubescent juvenile thing. It was like, well, you're the ones who are asking her to pass notes back and forth. So, I mean, come on. Of course. Uh, that it just There was a lot of really fun stuff. And again, like we say so often with this show, everything, everything is grounded in respect. Um, yeah. Even, you know, even Sherlock is a little bit aware of, um, you know, how frequently he invades Joan's personal space, moving her bed up to the roof and everything. And, and then making her think he's moved her bed to the meeting room. Which, in reading the uh, review over at the AV Club, I did not realize it is the same set, dressed differently yeah. for those two Yes, episodes. it is, which is a really nice way of playing... It's a really nice little meta joke. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and before we finish up here, we do have to mention the Sparkle Pony Playhouse. <laughs> I can't say anything. Well I'm done, prop about department. It. Yeah. yeah. No, it's really great. The prop department's been on fire this season. Mm-hmm. Um, between their color-coded decorate color-coded document thing which mm-hmm. god how long did that take them to do like yeah. hat, hats off but then this no fantastic mm-hmm. and they do really good work anyway because i mean someone has to create those videos that they're watching all this stuff so i mean this is a show that has a lot of all shows have a lot of work into them but this is a show that nicely shows that work a lot of the time and mm-hmm. i think that's really great and my final thought as ever, as always on the show, but particularly for me, notable in this episode, Joan's wardrobe is the best. She's God, like, that dress with oh, the full rose? It's, it's like she got dressed up special to talk to him about his crush. I know! It's, it's great. No, I love no, I love Joan's clothes, too. Joan's, cl- Joan's got the best wardrobe on TV now that Hannibal's not on the air anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, less, uh, less invested in wardrobe and more invested in drama is oh, American God. Crime. Though oh. Felicity Hoffman's got some pretty fab dresses, I must say. She does have some pretty fab dresses, but God. Yeah. This oh. is season two, episode six. I saw a lot of um, reaction to this, so I was like, oh, I better watch it. See what everybody's buzzing about. Um, apparently there was a lot of response to the bigotry that comes out in this episode. It felt completely organic and logical and natural to me. Uh, yeah. A lot of people seem to, I don't know if you ran across, at least in my Twitter feed and online, I was seeing people go like, is it believable that all this like homophobia pops up out of nowhere? It's like, what show were you watching? Right. And also, A, I didn't see any of that because while American Crime is on, I'm writing a review of Mm -hmm. something else Yeah, on one of these nights. When does American Crime air? Wednesdays? Yeah. Yes. Tuesdays? Wednesdays? Yes. Yeah, it, I think it's Wednesdays. Okay. And so I'm writing about Arrow, which is the least socially conscious show, despite wanting to be socially conscious sometimes. Anyway, um, so the idea of believability doesn't enter into my equation when I'm dealing with American crime. Mm-hmm. In no small part because it, it's still, for me, very much a morality play type of thing. I mean... We're dealing with this. I we're dealing with a heightened reality of consequences, uh, not co- consequences, well, consequences, but also coincidences and things all happening at once, and that's that's how this works. This that's how melodrama works. That's how these sorts of stories are told. So, and also, it's not like this show is shot 
or in a verite style or in a realistic style. It's a high, highly stylized, aesthetically grounded show that both draws you in but then pushes you out due to ABC standards and practices. So it's just like, I don't need it to be believable. I need the chain of events within the show to make sense. Basically, I need the shows to operate within a generic framework that is re- realistic, but I don't need realism. Mm-hmm. from the show and i think that's always like a hang-up so i don't need this homophobia homophobia concern just to come out of nowhere because it's necessary for the show to continue but it's also part of the genre that they're operating in and as long as that makes sense to me i'm okay i also just think it makes sense for the characters that we're yes. seeing and i also don't think it is odd that characters who hadn't expressed particularly homophobic uh I guess, points of view, all yeah. of a sudden start spouting them when they find out that their son is gay. I mean, yeah. like, why is it a surprise that this is not something that came up previously when they didn't know their son was gay? Right. So, no. I don't know. I'd, for me, I see absolutely see where you're coming from, and I actually agree when you're approaching it as a melodrama, as, as a morality play. That adds an extra level of why it wouldn't bother me. But even yeah. just, this felt realistic to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And- I think the other thing to remember is that where this is set is also just really important to where all of this is coming from. Because, I mean, this may be something that people just don't talk about or they expect it to not be talked about. Because to circle back to this, it's a crime. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Culturally speaking, still, for a lot of people, it's a crime. So we have to, you have to think about what they're trying to, what the show's trying to accomplish to me before you say believability. Mm-hmm. And, but to your point, it's just, it makes sense to me as well that this is something that wouldn't come up until it came up because this is something that we don't discuss because we don't need to discuss it because those types of people aren't around us type of mm-hmm. mentality. So of course, when it comes up, yeah, so no, I'm perfectly okay with an idea of believability. And I love the fact that Felicity Hoffman's character is just like, no, we're going to reframe this. And she's using it for her own ends. And just, God, she's such a horrible, 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 <laughs> horrible human being. And I love it. I love watching her clean constantly mm-hmm. to get things off. She's constantly grooming herself, brushing her teeth, washing her hands, straightening things. I mean, it's so good. And it's so deep deeply embedded in what the show is trying to do that oh i just really like this show kate i yeah. really really like this show how much did uh taylor's new boyfriend basically saying he didn't believe him destroy so you? so destroyed me yeah. i was just like oh god no god no oh yeah i i did miss evie this this week but mm-hmm. that's because that performer is amazing mm-hmm. like i love her I I, I can't wait to see what she does next, but I mean, just, I missed her this week just for, but yeah, no, completely and totally gutted me watching him go, yeah, but you went there with the express purpose of doing that. And I just went, oh, type of thing. But it's so important to the narrative that you get that because Mm -hmm. it continues this thread. Yeah. No, I loved it. Yeah. The one part that I'm still waiting to come into focus. Yeah. Is timothy hutton's character coach dan um, yes and i because i just, the way that they keep coming back to him more has to be coming 
for yeah. that character. And not just because it's Timothy Hutton. Let's give him something to do besides yeah. be Denial Man. Um, but also just the way they keep going back to him. Like, this week it's him painting. Um, you know, there's different... They just keep going back to And I keep waiting for another shoe. Just something. He needs to figure something out or, yeah. you know... There needs to be a reason that we're spending so much time with him. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm hoping that that'll come soon and not in, like, episode nine. Uh, sure. That's the only, like, kind of question I have. The other question is I, I really would like if they would connect the two storylines more. Like, I, that also feels like it's something that is leading somewhere. But the the one high school with the with the picket line and everything, yes. just, it feels too separate. We yeah. need more characters crossing over, I think, for those. Yeah, and I don't think that we're going to get a lot of crossover just because mm-hmm. private school, really elite, pri- re- uh, public school, really elite private school type of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think the key thing, and this may be just the show overreaching a little bit, mm-hmm. is trying to do both of these things and to, it's doing one thing really well. It's doing the private education thing really well. The public education stuff just kind of weaves in and out, but it's not weaving in and out enough, I think. Yeah. And I agree with you. And yeah. the stuff coming back to haunt the principal, like the food, like the lunches and the breakfast, the meal plans, mm-hmm. coming back in that uh, community meeting is really significant, I think. But it needs to like have a little bit more weight, I, I would agree. Yeah. Well... Uh, it's been a fantastic season so far. I'm looking for I, every week. I look forward to it. Yes, they're, they're nailing it over on American Crime. What wins your week in drama? It's tough to pick. It is tough to pick. Um, I think I'm going to go with American Crime this week. Um, mm-hmm. did I go with American Crime last week? No, I went with OJ last week. So <laughs> I'll go with the other American Crime this week. And yeah, so no, I'm going to go with American Crime this week in part just because it was a really good episode, but also in part because. I'm also just really excited about next week's episode. Yeah, and I will yeah. also give it to American Crime, though I to be honest, the episode I was most looking forward to was definitely Top Chef. So, you know, <laughs> tip of the hat to Top Chef. Uh, well, a few show notes here. You can find a post for this episode up at theteleverse.org, which is the website for, for this podcast, which now, finally, to die, can announce all the Get Back episodes of the podcast are now up at theteleverse.org. So you can search any DVD shelf we've done. You should be able to pull up that episode and... And, you know, skip ahead to the last half hour of the show to, to hear us talking about uh, that show. Um, a DVD and that shelf was section... a lot of work for Kate to do, everyone. Like, Kate spent hours doing that. So it was so a lot, a lot hours. of work. <laughs> and it was all worth it. And I really appreciate you doing that. Oh, thank you. There will be a DVD shelf section with just the DVD shelves coming. I don't know how long it'll take before it gets done takes a lot of time but that is will be eventually be coming let us know if there are other things you would like to see at the site like i would like to there to be a spotlight of shame section with each of the spotlights of shame over the years the trouble is listeners i only know a couple of the times like which episodes they're in so if you remember a spotlight of shame or a particular moment you would like to have excerpted uh let us know and i will i will attempt to add that to the list of things to do for the website what i'm hearing is that our listeners should make a televerse wiki <laughs> Something like so, that, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fa- a little bit of fan labor, thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can also, of course, email us theteleverse at gmail dot com. You can find us in iTunes, where we have an M four A chaptered feed and an M P three unchaptered feed. You can also find us on Facebook, uh, and and continue the conversation over there. You can find both of us on Twitter. I am at theteleverse, and Noel, you are. 
at Noble RK. Uh, right now, I do not have any weekly reviews going at the AV Club, though you can find my coverage of Man Seeking Woman, Heroes Reborn, Veep, and much more over there if you are so inclined. And what do you currently have going, Noel? Still, still more the, Arrow, right? Still all the de- uh, still all the Arrowverse and uh, Good Wife, potentially. We'll see. Now that the show is officially canceled, which is something else we didn't mention, mm-hmm. um, now that the show is officially canceled, whether or not I power through the next nine episodes is kind of up in the air. Because if they were going to do season eight, I was probably going to quit until the season finale. But now... I kind of feel compelled to finish the season. It was a week of good news here in the TV world. Oh, <laughs> burn! But it's true. It uh, is true. <laughs> and uh, we've got a lot of great TV coming next week. A lot of shows are starting up soon. Um, but a big one, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, is the series finale of Gravity Falls. So with no further ado, uh, here is my interview with composer for Gravity Falls. Uh, many other shows as well. Uh, Brad Reek. So I'll be right back after this. back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalzik, and this week I'm very glad to be talking with a composer whose work I know our listeners are, are fans of um, from many different series, uh, but the one that comes most to mind right this particular week is, of course, Gravity Falls, and that's Mr. Brad Breek. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So Gravity Falls is a, a series that we've been covering on my podcast uh, when it airs, and then after it airs, we scour Wikipedia for when the next episode is going to come because uh, it's a fabulous show with fabulous music. And yeah. at long last, we have the series finale coming up this, this next weekend. Um, and given, given the delightful Weird McKedden part one and two, which took us to such different worlds for the show, um, what was composing for this finale like for you? Did you think of it as like a three-part extravaganza or more breaking up into chunks seeing as like at least part one and two are so distinct what what was your approach um i honestly i didn't realize that the two parts were going to play as one long piece um i did them in reverse or i did the last i guess it's actually four 22 minute chunks or whatever yeah and i did what was it i think the first one i did was the last chunk I can't remember, but it was kind of flipped. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, no, I can't, Alex just kind of gave me some he- a heads up at one point that um, this is the last chunk. Um, so uh, <laughs> you're going to be doing the chunk before it next. So make sure the last chunk is bigger than the one you're going to do <laughs> next week. <laughs> so like that was uh, that was challenging. Um, but, you know, I kind of approached it like a normal... I, I think, actually, like, as the the second season progressed, um, I, the show obviously kind of got bigger, and um, the stakes got higher, and we kind of, you know, kind of had a trajectory. Um, and the music kind of, I feel like, reflected that, the, the kind of scope of the music and the palette 
um, broadened and, and got bigger. Um, and I think so. This was the, the final finale, um, which is kind of a culmination of all that building. Um, and yeah, but I, I think I kind of approached it the same way as the other ones, just kind of bigger. And then, um, of course, there are things that happen at the very end that needed to be treated a little differently because they're kind of we're kind of wrapping up everything emotionally and sending everyone off, and that kind of required um, a different approach than usual. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, it you know because with animation, the the schedule is just so different than on something like, like, for example, your work on Awkward, which is a live action show. Um, is that something that comes up frequently shooting out of, uh, or scoring, I should say episodes, um, in a different order than they're going to air. I mean, Gravity Falls is serialized, but not as intensely as some other shows. So I don't know how much that affects your, your, your composition. Yeah. This, this is the only show I've worked on that, that had, um, you know, a continuous, uh, a through, through, you know, a, a narrative going through the whole thing. And, you know, obviously they're, I don't know if there are very few other examples of animated shows, I guess, that have done that. But, um, yeah, it's the only one I've worked on. And, um, yeah, it, so so usually it doesn't matter what order I do things in. Um, so this is kind of a special case. Well, as you mentioned in season two, the 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 progression in the, the show really increased in scope, just getting more and more epic and building towards Bill and Gideon and all that, but also just the personal elements of it. And it was fun to, to, to listen to the score grow with that as well. Is that something that's been a particular challenge or thing you've enjoyed? You tend to prefer like the more monster of the week kind of approach in season one, or did you enjoy getting to play with this like apocalyptic vision that was coming over, over season two? I definitely enjoyed this, especially the last several episodes. Um, the scenes were longer and played more cinematic. You know, it gives me more time to spread out. Um, you know, most of the time in animation, like the longest cues are like two minutes or one minute or something. And on these shows, you know, sometimes there were like nine minute cues and you really get to spread out and um, play with color, you know, because the the kind of, uh, scope is so big. I got to play with a big, broader palette, and um, yeah, I think I had more fun with these last big cinematic episodes. The Monster of the Week stuff is fun too, um, but you know, I felt like I got a better workout kind of <laughs> the last episode. Well, one of the things that I know as a fan of the show, I've been missing in the more recent so uh, episodes is that with the broadening scope and with these, like you're saying, the more extended scenes and, and more intense relationships, we've gotten fewer songs, fewer ridiculous, silly golf ball songs and such, uh, which is always the thing I enjoy about this show. Um, is that something that, is that just uh, the order that I was watching it in or, you know, were you, was that something you were noticing as well? And, and what's it like to, to flex those different muscles? Um, you know, I hadn't really thought about the fact that the songs went away. Um, yeah, I don't know. Doing songs is, is definitely, it's probably my favorite thing to do. Um, yes, but I, I work on another show called We Bear Bears for Cartoon Network, and we've been doing a lot of songs, so I guess I've been uh, doing the exercise that part of my brain over there since it went away from Gravity Falls. <laughs> 
I know, I, you know, like you said, I'm, We Bear Bears, that's an element that's used over there. On shows like um, Steven Universe and Adventure Time, there's lots of fabulous music incorporated over there. Um, but how frequently on a show like Gravity Falls, where you have some of these these extended songs when they come up, or very brief ones, when you're writing the are you writing the lyrics, or is the writer do that? Is that something you and Alex uh, Hirsch do, collaborate on? What's the process for that like? Um, it it varies from show to show. For Gravity Falls, I think probably ninety percent of the lyrics came from Alex and and his writers. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I can't think a couple songs I wrote lyrics for, but not too many. I think they were usually kind of, kind of in the script, or at least they had them in the animatic. Like they, um, so usually, yeah, they have they have lyrics, and then um, uh, I just take those and turn them into a a song. But um, yeah, it it depends from it, it varies from show to show. I think usually writers are bringing um, bringing lyrics for the animated shows. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and that lets them connect those lyrics with the dialogue i mean it makes sense sure. absolutely yeah when you're when you're collaborating like that it's such a collaborative medium uh, if i had to pick a style because of course gravity falls goes all over the place you've got um episodes really getting into genre and horror elements you've got episodes like boys crazy which is just delightful uh boy band pop the whole way uh, if i had to pick a genre i feel like the 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 pop sensibilities in the show are really strong, especially with a character like Mabel. Um, what what do you draw from when, you, when you're composing? Like, what would you describe as sort of the sound of the show? I always, I guess, when I think of Gravity Falls, like I think of the palette as being kind of cinematic, and the song. I always felt like the songs and stuff were not a huge part of Gravity Falls. I think they probably are for fans, but in my in my mind, there weren't that many songs. Like maybe. I don't know how many songs there were, maybe 10 or something. Um, it's not like, whereas We Bear Bears, there's like a song every episode. So like, that's what I think about for that show. But Gravity Falls, I, uh, it was always, it's always more about um, getting the emotions just right for the scenes. Cause that was such a huge, I think that's something that sets this show apart is Alex really took the character development and their relationships seriously and there are you know real stakes and consequences emotionally um for characters and that's what i always felt like um yeah sorry to deviate from your no, question no, go I kind for of it. Felt like that was the thing in my mind that gravity falls was about um and the score you know and also you know the again like the world is so big and um unique that when i think about the music of gravity falls i kind of think about those aspects of the music um but i don't know i in terms of like giving a like pinpointing what that sound is or giving it a name i i don't know i guess the, there's like one sound that was kind of like my go-to sound for setting the mood of gravity falls and it's kind of this weird uh like whispery uh kind of echoey sound and like if i just think the first sound that comes to mind is that sound and uh you would recognize the sound since you've watched the show, but uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, because there's a lot of uh, keyboards, there's uh, percussion. I think of something like I assume it's a keyboard, but mimicking like a celeste to get that kind of creepy yeah. music box feel, um, yeah. and that kind of stuff. You know, again, that builds as the show goes forward. It starts out as sort of like a mystery shack kind of vibe, but as we add in Bill and Gideon. Um, and add more weird elements. It seems like that really 
built up more and more. Mm-hmm. The, the bells and stuff, definitely. The chalas was a big instrument that used, was used a lot, for sure. So how, how, how many instruments do you get to play with? Because I would imagine, I mean, it's... I imagine budget is an issue, a concern for any animated show. There's so much more cost in the animation. I don't know how that affects the budget for composing. Do you get to play with a lot of instruments or is it a lot of, uh, keyboards and synthesizers? No, it's like, yeah, the budgets for, for these shows are very small, um, relative to like, Oh, I don't know, like the walking dead or something like where the walking dead, they, they, they get to use a real orchestra every week. And, um, I like maybe used an, a, a musician other than myself on two or three occasions for the whole series. Uh, and it was probably 90, 95% done just in the computer, um, you know, using, you know, orchestral sounds and like the Celeste sounds we were talking about were all in the computer. They're samples of a real Celeste and I could just play them on the, my computer keyboard. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, it's a very convenient way to work. There, it, it's it would be hard for me to do the amount of music I did, uh, probably impossible to do the amount of music I did for Gravity Falls and you know the time scale that I was given. Um, but yeah, given that the budgets are so small, it's just really, and I, and it's also just the because of the work I've done, I've always worked this way, so it's what I'm comfortable with. Um, but yeah, it's kind of unfortunately that's how it works. It's all one dude in a room in front of the computer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it helps, you know, allows you to get a specific sound for the show. If, if they doubled the budget for season two and all of a sudden you had a full symphony orchestra, it would be a very different sound. And so yeah. they'd have to increase the budget by about 10 times. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's <more>. true. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're, when you're looking at um, the kind of sound and you're building towards creating um, this really, you know, I assume, we'll, based on what we've seen before, it'll be a rather intense finale, action-packed and dramatic and all of that. How do you approach that from your set? When you're like, okay, I've got, I've got this budget, I've got this amount of sounds I can play with, uh, but you're trying to invoke these genre elements and these you know, end-of-the-world kind of stakes you know, without going so close to the, what people have done before that it feels parodic. Is, do you have any concerns with that or do you mostly just shut all that off and just stay in the zone? Well, I think like the big trick with these shows, with these animated shows, I guess with any kind of scoring for like TV or, or film is you need to find, at least the thing that I found is you need to find a few elements right away that distinguish the sound of the show from everything else, um, like anything else you've done. And, th- and that usually just means finding like a handful of sounds that you can use like over and over again that you kind of layer with other things. Like you layer with things you might usually use, like, you know, strings and stuff. You layer on top of that to give it its own character. Um, and so the last, the last, you know, the finale and approaching the finale was about using those same sounds, but then maybe adding some new stuff, like adding some bigger stuff to the orchestra. Like, um, just, I kind of sometimes like say I was using a French horn section, you know, in one, in a normal episode. And then for these episodes, I would add more French horns to those to make it sound bigger, you know, add bigger drums and more, you know, more choir and stuff. Um, 
just to make it fuller and have even more impact. And I got, you know, I get some new sounds that I didn't have in my vocabulary before. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of how it always works. It just you, you find some elements that 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 are totally unique to that show, and you don't use them on other shows, and you make sure they kind of are prominent. That's how that's how it, I feel like it's worked for me to kind of keep every, each show unique. Do you have particular uh, instruments or or types of sounds or, or rhythms that you go to for specific characters? Like, do you do the leitmotif approach, or do you mostly just look at making the sound, adhering above all to the tone of the show, the sound that you created for the show as a whole? It depends on the shows. For Gravity Falls, I think we only had themes for three. We had a theme for Gideon, a theme for Bill, and a theme for the book, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, those kind of just happened organically. I didn't really think about it too much. Um, like, I didn't, I don't know, Mabel kind of had her own palette, but Dipper didn't really have anything of his own. I think maybe kind of his sound was sound of the book because he was always doing stuff with the book, or the journals, I'm sorry. Um, and Stan kind of had a palette, like kind of, uh, kind of cheesy, sleazy organ music we, we would kind of use for him sometimes. But um, I don't know, it's something that... Like, like I'm working on another. I'm working on Voltron and DreamWorks now, and on that show we have. Um, I'm working with a partner named Brian Parkhurst, and we we kind of develop themes for a lot of different locations and stuff on that show. But um, and some shows don't really like We Bear Bears. There are no real themes for characters, um, so it just it kind of depends on the show and what feels natural and what the creator asks for, you know. Absolutely. Well, because otherwise it's easy for it to get too busy. Because, um, again, like you said, often in animation there are shorter scenes, and so it can feel a bit labored if you're trying to create a separate, unique theme for each character that comes in. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I was also curious, when you have um, animation, like when you have these episodes, because as the show continued, is built over the, for Gravity Falls specifically over the two seasons and gets more... Um, you know, increases its scope, increases everything over the, you know, the storytelling through the two seasons. Um, there's more scoring. At least I was noticing there being more scoring in general. But every now and again, there'll be like a dialogue scene just that, that at least sounds like it doesn't have scoring. How much of that do you find in in animation? Whereas, uh, you know, some shows will have just constant, like, underneath uh-huh. There's always something. There's always something. Whereas, and uh, uh, Gravity Falls, every now and again, I was hearing there would just be some some space, and which lets the dialogue maybe breathe a little bit more. Uh, is that something that's that just happens in spotting meetings, or is that an approach that show specific? I find that that's very much um, at the discretion of the creator, and everyone has their own taste. Um, it's also uh, depends on the genre, like some. Like really young kids shows, I feel like they just have music constantly. Um, I haven't really worked on a show like that, but uh, I but uh, yeah, it depends on the show. Like We Bear Bears, Daniel Chong, the creator, likes a lot of space. Like he, there's not a ton of music in those shows. Gravity Falls, there was also I feel like a lot of um, it wasn't wall to wall music, but we punctuated stuff more than we do on We Bear Bears. Um, um, yeah, it really, it really depends on what the creator wants. Like usually the first couple episodes, I'll put way too much music in there. And then as an example of what wall to wall music feels like, and then let them strip it back. 
but it's always interesting to me to see, um, you know, the what the instincts of, of different creators are. Uh, you've mentioned in previous interviews having a very improvis improvisational approach to your composing. I feel like that's got to be just a necessity when it comes to to television composing. Um, is that is that still the, this was from a few years ago? Is that still the case? And, and uh, if you would mind sharing with our listeners, what is an average like turnaround for for an episode of something like We Were Bears or Gravity Falls? Yeah, the, the turnaround depends on the show. Gravity Falls tended to take about seven days. I, I well, I usually try because while as I was working on Gravity Falls, like I was currently working on, I think three or four other series, so I, I would have to give myself a strict deadline. I have to be like, I have, I use, I would usually have two weeks. They would give me two weeks, but I would have to finish it in seven days at the max. Um, so I've given myself that like we bear bears usually takes, uh, three days per episode. Some other shows take less. Um, yeah, it, it depends, but yeah, you really have to work fast and, um, improvisation. I, I, I'm not really sure how I would approach it without just kind of improvising to to picture. I think some composers kind of watch it and they, I don't know another way to do it. <laughs> but um, yeah, you have to you have to be able to come up with ideas quickly on the spot, and typically you have to. I, I mean, I usually it's like first or second idea that I go with. I usually watch the scene and play around with some sounds. And really quickly, I mean, I've done this a lot now too, so I I, my, I feel like my instincts are kind of honed, um, and I'm uh, I'm not very precious about the stuff I write anymore, so I'm not like afraid of it being rejected. Uh, so usually, because you know, a lot of stuff you're going to do is going to be rejected, and you just come to terms with that, and you know you're going to have a chance to revise. So usually, I'll lay down something really quick. Usually, it's the first idea. I'll lay down the idea quick with piano or, you know, a sound, like some orchestral sound, and, and um, then I'll flesh it out, turn it in, and, you know, hope for the best, and then <laughs> if I get notes, I'll change it. But, um, yeah, you, you, because you have so little time, and yet there's so much music to do, especially for Gravity Falls, it was just, it was a very intense process. Um, you got to work fast and don't second-guess yourself. <laughs> Well, and it, again, it's a testament to the the shows where it works, meaning the collaborative process, you know, making sure that you're getting good feedback with the creator and so that you can have a constructive relationship, but also just with the skill of, the you know, each composer to be able to put out a, a soundtrack in such a short time that is so memorable and works so well and that contributes so much. And one of the developments in recent years that I've really been happy about is that more and more soundtracks are being released and people can go buy the music from Gravity Falls. Um, is that something that, you know, like, do you think about that when you're composing or do you, again, just like not focus on that because your priority has to be to the moment that you're in? I, none of my scores have been released for sale, actually. Oh, they haven't. <laughs> I've been misinformed. I think you can buy the theme song, but I I tried for a long time to get the Gravity Falls scores, at least on iTunes, because it cost them nothing to post it there. Like, just put it up there. It doesn't cost anything. And people were asking me for it, like, you know, every day. And I was it's like, why, why not? So, but they never did it. I don't know why Disney, so I was like, you know, screw it. I'm just going to post it on SoundCloud and kids can download it for free. Because I don't, I don't even care. I'm not going to make any money off of it anyway. I just... You know, people, fans want to 
have the music to listen to, and I love that they could listen to it. So all of the music for Gravity Falls, um, I, it's, I've been, I'm in the process of uploading the music for all of the episodes um, in order, and they'll all be up there by the time of the premiere, but most of them are on my SoundCloud now. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, that's awesome that other people get their <laughs> music released. <laughs> mine, none of mine has been released. But I'm happy that um, no one has stopped me from putting it on SoundCloud so people can at least listen to it. So. Well, I apologize for that mistake okay. there. Uh, but, but no, because I, I was listening to some of it on SoundCloud, and it's it just, as a musician myself, I know that when you listen to a score, um, you know, just by itself, maybe with some of the dialogue in there, but in general, by itself, you can hear so much more density of what's happening because there's, there's so much information there. There's so much nuance that gets lost when the, when the mix gets dialed down, when you add explosions and sound effects and, yeah, and dialogue over top. The bummers about writing for picture and animation and TV animation in particular is that you have to forget about the fact that no one is going to hear most of what you're doing. Like, especially if it's like a big action scene, your, your, your stuff is going to be in the background and you're hardly going to hear it. And it's kind of going to add, you know, it's going to add something to the scene, but uh, you have to really forget about that. Cause it, it's a bummer when you watch the, uh, when you watch the final mix, uh, which I don't, honestly, I don't watch the final mixes of the show as much because it, I, it's kind of discouraging. I, mm-hmm. I just enjoy the episode while I'm working on it. And then I kind of forget about it because it's such a bummer when you, you think about how much work he did and the fact that no one can really hear it. But I think, I do think Alex was really sensitive to that more so than a lot of uh, other shows. He he would turn the music up in spots. So and I think he had a really good ear for uh, figuring out when to feature music and when to, you know, when sound effects are more important. Sometimes people, you know, the music just stays low, like, um, you know, forever. And it's like, why do you, why do you even have, what are you paying me for, you know? <laughs> but um, yeah, whatever. <laughs> well, as a viewer, it, I really do think that comes through because when you're watching a show, where the composer uh, maybe has gotten dis- enchanted <laughs> and sure. has stopped adding that nuance and adding those layers and levels into the music, you you notice it, or maybe you don't notice it until you watch one that does have that density underneath all the other action. It feels more complete and whole, and and just it lends an air of care and consideration to to the episode or the show that really does a lot to elevate it. Well, so. I appreciate it. And I know there are lots of fans of the series who do as well. So thank you. (laughs) Um, Well, I've already gone way too long uh, because it's always fun talking with with composers. But I wanted to also mention that as well as being a composer and a songwriter, you are also a musician. Um, And now people should go check out your website, uh, breadbreak.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, did you have anything that you wanted to plug? Any, uh, any, any projects besides the ones that we've already mentioned that people should check out? Yeah. Well, uh, check out pickle and peanut. It's another show I do on Disney that is kind of maligned, but I think is super fun. <laughs> I think kids are like not getting it, but it's so funny. It's like an adult swim show, like the level of humor. Um, yeah. And we bear bears and, I don't think I'm supposed to talk about Voltron yet, but whatever, it's coming out soon. <laughs> <laughs> Very exciting. Well, thank, thank you so much, Brad, for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure talking with you. 
Thanks for having me. Everyone check out the Gravity Falls series finale on this coming Monday, February 15th on Disney XD. Um, and thank you all for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Thank you.